people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now... Except the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Most abandoned. We may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. What is it? We've got a war. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. They must be destroyed on sight! When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Father Malone. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Also in the booth is Mr. Jamie Russell. Hi, lovely to be here, guys. We are continuing Shocktober 2022 with an episode on George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Released in 1978, the film is a stalwart of the zombie pantheon. Ostensibly picking up after the events of Night of the Living Dead, the film stars Galen Ross as Francine, one of a handful of people trying to survive the zombie apocalypse. She and the others find refuge in a mall where they rebuild a facsimile of contemporary American society. We will be spoiling 
spoiling the film as we go along, as well as the 2004 remake. So if you haven't seen either one of those films, just go ahead, turn off the podcast, go watch the movies, come back after you have. We'll still be here. So, Jamie, when was the first time you saw Dawn of the Dead and what did you think? I actually have a really weird relationship with this movie in terms of how I first discovered it, because I actually discovered it as a video game. And not very many people know this, but in 1986, so I would have been about 12 years old, a little French company called Ubisoft, who no one had ever heard of. They're now a giant, but no one had ever heard of. They now make Assassin's Creed, whatever, made a game called Zombie, Zombie without an E on the end. And it was a point and click adventure game. And it started in a helicopter and you went down into the mall and you fought these zombies. Now, I had never seen a zombie movie and I'd certainly never seen Dawn of the Dead. And it blew my mind up it was amazing and it was only years later that i then discovered the movie i was like oh that's what the video game was all about and so that was actually my lead in to it so when i was watching the movie i was like this is really reminding me of something what have i seen this film before no i sure haven't what is it and it's a video game and i actually don't think anyone ever licensed the video game i could be wrong but my sense is it was just heavily kind of inspired by but it had the helicopter the mall you played as four different characters one of them was a woman wow the whole thing so yeah a little bit of trivia about dawn of the dead to start off with and father malone how about yourself i'll try and be brief but you know like most of the movies you've had me on to talk about i experienced way too young because i hung out with a group of way too old irresponsible cousins my my cousin susan by the time i was nine which is 1982 i was already a devout stephen king fan thanks to her and one day my mother took me to a department store and I found the trade paperback for Creepshow, Bernie Wrightson's adaptation of Creepshow. And I read it cover to cover and I demanded that my mother buy it for me to bring home because I had to bring it to Susan because it said on the cover, now a very scary movie. And I was panicked because I thought we had missed it. Uh, and she assured me, no, 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 it's it's coming out and I'll take you to see it. And then she pointed to the cover, which is a beautiful painting by Jack Kamen, one of the original EC artists of Billy the the wraparound character from the story sitting in his bed. On the wall behind him are three posters. There's Carrie, The Shining, which I think at one time was originally Salem's Lot, and Dawn of the Dead. And she pointed to Dawn of the Dead and she said, but the guy who made Creepshow made this movie. And that that's the scariest movie of all time. And you're too young to see it. And then if that wasn't tantalizing enough, she turned to her husband and said, and don't you ever take him to see it. He will have nightmares for the rest of his life. So now I 100% needed to see Dawn of the Dead. And I spent the entire summer scanning the movie listings in three different papers we had in Boston. And I finally found a screening at the Orson Welles Cinema at midnight. And my irresponsible cousin, Bruce, her husband, took me. Two things happened right away. George Romero became my absolute hero from seeing the movie. And my cousin, Susan, was 100% correct. I was way too young. The movie wasn't scary. It wasn't frightening. It was terrifying. The little you know, meaning of the word terror. And I am 49 years old. I saw this movie when I was nine years old. I have for 40 years had a recurrent nightmare. And it's from this movie. It's one of the shots in this movie. Now, having said all that, like as scarred as I am and as too young as I was to see it, like I said, Romero automatically became my hero. And this movie became an easy answer to an unfair question, which is, what's your favorite movie? It's Dawn of the Dead, without hesitation. So what is the, the shot that gets you? It's the goddamn point of view from Steven when the elevator opens and the zombies come in to get him. It's like in the preview, it's, oh, it would pop up randomly in my dreams. I'm having a good dream and I open a door and in they rush. My late wife, when she was mad at me, would text the image to me. That shot in the the elevator with the zombies coming in. I mean, that is classic. 
about why the zombies are so scary because it's claustrophobia you know i mean that whole sense of just being trapped and there's nowhere to go is what really kind of makes zombie movies work i think that's where for me that was always where the terror came from and like father malona i used to have dreams about zombies all the time and it was always just that there's nowhere to go they're everywhere you can't get away from this you know just zombies themselves are so odd because it's so much to do about the mass of them and just the numbers and that they won't stop. They just keep coming no matter what. There's always more going back to their origins. There's more people and that just people, I mean, people are hell, right? <laughs> the old line. And now we have just more and more of these bodies and bodies and bodies coming after you. I was six years old when this movie came out and it was one of those where even though I wasn't into horror films, you know, I'm much more into like sci-fi. Star Wars was kind of my thing at the time. But man, just the images from this film still came in. You know, you're talking about the the preview and the doors opening. Yeah, that or the guy with the machete through his head, that kind of iconic image. Just so many shots that I still remember, even though I don't even think I saw this movie until I was... Maybe in my 20s, I think I rented this and Day of the Dead pretty close together, probably in my early 20s. So this movie definitely has a different resonance for me than I think it does for either of you guys, because for me, it's just like I had already experienced zombie films at that point, And so it wasn't something that was new for me. It wasn't something that was terrifying for me. It was more just the sociology of the film is what I found interesting, especially just the way that we have these small group of characters working together, working against each other, working against their own interests a lot of times. And I just love the way that the movie, it really takes its time. You know, I'm used to movies now where it's just like, boom, 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 we have to move, we have to get going, we have to just really just get through this film. And this one, it's very slow. It's just, all right, we're going to do this. It's very methodical. Not to say that it wastes time, but it really does take the time to say, this is what the world could be like if there was a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, no, completely. And, you know, I mean, you look at now today, we have like The Walking Dead or whatever, and you're like, long form storytelling is, is the big thing. But this was kind of that before, you know, it was possible to do this on TV. And it was really horror movies around that time. And even today, you're kind of like, you're 90 minutes, you're in, bang, out again, get scared, get out, back in the lobby. And Dawn of the Dead, I think, really surprised people in just the fact that it had these really long stretches, as you say, of just like the characters, no zombie fighting at all, you know, just the characters interacting with each other and experiencing boredom. I mean, you know, this is like a, a horror movie but it actually lets its characters be bored right in the middle and you're like that's you know there's really good reasons from a kind of social commentary point of view why Romero does that but just as from a filmmaking point of view it's really kind of you know European art film kind of style rather than like zombie schlocky b-movie mayhem and Romero had his problems with distributors because the movie was so long you know people were just quite scared about putting out this this zombie movie that felt so epic, you know, for one another word. It is a long film. You know, it does take its time. And that Romero really stuck by his guns and was not willing to cut this, even though there are many, many cuts of this film. So in that regard, we should talk a little bit about how this was a co-production, how Argento and Dario Argento and is it Claudio Argento were the producers of this. Romero had made Dawn of the Dead and a few other films and some great films by this point, including The Crazies, and that he starts to have this relationship with Dario Argento and says, okay, yeah, you know, 
He was over, from what I understand, in Italy writing the script, or Argento was in the United States while he was writing the script. I can't remember which the story is. And that they're working together on this. These two horror masters. And Romero has never been one to shy away from work with, with other horror masters. I mean, you know, like Father Malone was saying, he's working with Stephen King. And he and King had quite a relationship over the years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's fascinating. The idea of kind of Argento having something to do with this amazing zombie movie, which isn't in his style of stuff at all, is really fascinating. And I think how it kind of came together was just, I mean, when you read about it in the kind of the history books of how the film was made, I mean, listen to interviews and everything, it really sounds like these were two filmmakers who completely respected one another, which is really quite something. And that Argento's role was very much hands off. He was just like, okay, we're going to find the money for you, George. And I think they maybe put up like half the 1.5 million budget or something. I need to check, but that sounds about right. It was a huge chunk anyway. And we are going to basically just make sure you have this money and you can go off and write the script that you want to write. And we're not going to interfere when it comes to the filmmaking or whatever. And Romero originally had this really dark version of the script that was set in the mall which was the Monroeville Mall in Pennsylvania, which which is it's really important to note was like the very first mall in, I think, in Pittsburgh. And this was that kind of time when malls were kind of rolling out across America. So it was a big deal to be shooting there. It wasn't just now it just seems like, oh, you shot it in a mall, whatever. We've seen strange things. But back then it was like it was really unique. He found this location. He'd written this script, which had a man and a woman kind of hiding up on the upper levels of the mall and kind of coming down and doing this hunter gathering kind of thing among all the zombies. And it was kind of post much further into the future than Night of the Living Dead. And then he kind of brought it back and was like, no, this is too dark. It needs to be something else. And so he produced this script that is kind of the script that we know, now know on screen. And I think um, his producer, Richard Rubenstein, sent about the first 30 pages or something to Argento and was like, you know, what do you think? And they knew he was up for funding this movie. And he's like, oh, yeah, I love this. Where's the rest of the script? And they're like, no, you don't get to read the rest of the script until you kind of sign the <laughs> sign the finance over. And um, the story goes that Romero invited Argento over to Pittsburgh and he rented he had a car he rented a car a bit of lincoln continental or something you know to like kind of oh like a bit of hollywood kind of glamour whatever and the, tried to back this car onto the driveway as he was going to um get um agenda from the airport and managed to dent it so he like rental car with this big dent in the side as he's trying to you know be the big kind of hollywood um filmmaker kind of style thing because you know i mean the guys in pittsburgh isn't is not hollywood at all he puts on this razzle-dazzle, but I don't think it was necessary because Argento had clearly seen his movies. He'd read the, the 30 pages of the script. He loved it. He wanted to see the rest. He'd seen Romero's earlier movies, absolutely loved them too, and really just wanted to collaborate with this guy and was clearly aware that there was a market in Europe at this time, a market largely that actually Romero had inadvertently started through Night of the Living Dead, that there were filmmakers who were making movies for continental releases. And there was a huge audience in Europe now for that kind of horror, the kind of horror that Night of the Living Dead had kicked off. You know, lots of zombie movies. Think of um, George Grau's movie. The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue was one of the titles. I think it's got about 25 different titles. This movie. But, so that kind of like 1970s kind of horror, there were lots of these kind of movies that were coming out that were kind of for European audiences who really liked the gore and they could get away with gore and in the continent that they maybe couldn't get away with in the UK and um, the US. So basically, Argento was just like, go with God. You know, I trust you. You're going to make a great movie. And I think he came down and saw him shooting, watched a couple of setups on in the mall one evening and was just like, yeah, my money's being well spent. No problem. 
and really wasn't that involved in the creative side of it at all, but was heavily involved then in the distribution side of it. So what happened post-production in terms of Argento did his own cut of the movie, which was very different from Romero's cut, and took it out to European territories to kind of sell it over there. And by all intents and purposes, everybody made a lot of money out of this movie, by their standards anyway. I mean, certainly for Romero, you've got to realise Night of the Living Dead made a load of money, but I'm not sure Romero saw an awful lot of it for various reasons. And The Crazies, which you mentioned just before, was just like, what a brilliant movie that was which I completely agree with you, but I mean, it totally bombed. I mean, it really, it really did. So I think he really needed a hit. And that was what Dawn became for him. Yeah, he didn't really want to go back to the well of the zombies that quickly. And I think, you know, I talk a little bit about this in the, one of the interviews later on, that he had to wait between the two films. He had to do these other movies in order to get his skills up, get his confidence and then, yeah, have a few unsuccessful films in order to say, okay, I need to go back to this and and create, you know, follow up on that world, you know, going from night to dawn. And I really appreciate that the movie starts with Francine, they're dreaming that red carpet, and then the way we move down to her and that she's dreaming. And it very much feels like we are picking up right after the events of Night of the Living Dead. You know, a few years have passed. 10 years have passed, really. But in the logic of the movie, it feels like the zombie plague has just started and they're trying to deal, trying to figure out what's going on. This whole television studio where you just feel like they haven't slept in days and they are just running on coffee and cigarettes and trying their best to just figure out what the fuck is going on. And that endless stream of talking heads that they have on the television is wonderful. I just, the guy, the one at the very beginning who is talking about how, you know, the dead will rise and then they'll, they'll bite someone and then they will die and they will rise. And I love, of course, that, you know, we get that get up and kill that line that we have like in all the, the Rob zombie, you know, white zombie type songs and stuff. There are so many sound bites from this movie. It's wonderful. I think all the stuff that the um, on the TV station, all of that stuff is just brilliantly well written. And the that kind of clash between scientists who are trying to be completely rational about the fact that the world has changed and everybody else who is just completely losing it and can't handle it and are being really emotional. I think that thread runs through the whole movie in ways that we can maybe talk about later. But that idea of losing your head kind of goes with the you know shoot him in the head and that there's a there's a a whole discourse on kind of like what it is to be rational in a kind of crisis situation that i think is something that romero does really well in in dawn of the dead i didn't realize that one of those tv commentators the actor howard smith was also a director directed the documentary called gizmo from the late 70s which i used to see on cable all the time and even more importantly directed marjo the documentary about marjo gortner which is one of the most, your eyes just pop out of your head. He co-directed that one with with another person, and it's just like, wow. Marja Gortner is really fucking fascinating. A loon, but fascinating. I didn't know. That, that is an amazing piece of trivia. I had, I'm going to have to go and like IMDb this in a minute and like, see who he was. <laughs> the other thing that Argento brought to the party was Goblin or the goblins as the end credits say in the but, opening credits oh confusing as hell i like them better as the goblins by the way i mean goblin is great and makes more sense as a band but the goblins you're like 
Who's coming down the hall? <laughs> it's like the 1960s pop version of Goblin is the Goblins. <laughs> That's right. They're opening for Question Mark and the Mysterians. But it's not all Goblin, right? Because there are there's a lot of pieces of music that aren't Goblin. It feels like with the Romero version of this film that it's a pretty good mix of library music. And I would say there's more library music than there is Goblin music. Easily, yeah. That That is definitely the biggest change between the European version and the, the American version. Romero had a deep love of library music, and it's in all of his features. The entire, all of the, the sound cues you hear in this film is, are probably from the Capitol High Q library. That was the sort of the most famous one. And, you know, Romero started out as an editor cutting news uh, footage. Uh, but, you know, the, every night the, the evening news would send out crews to get footage of whatever the local news is. And all of that film needed to be processed and synchronized and cut together. And that's sort of how he he made his start. So he was very familiar with the library music. And I think more than any filmmaker in history, he uses library music at its most effective. Like I've heard, I've heard of all of these cues in tons of other media. And it's always just sort of slapdash and whatever. Like Romero's very precise about these music music cues that he uses. I watched all of the different versions of the film and then watched the theatrical cut last night in preparation. And his library music underscores and makes things ironic in places and heightens things that the Goblin score doesn't really do when you insert their stuff into it. Even down to the song, the I'm a man song, when the, when the rednecks are all having their party out there, they kind of change it to a generic, or gender change it to kind of a generic kind of country western sounding thing, but you don't get how hilarious the joke is without that song. No, completely. And you know what? You were just talking about Malone about Romero as an editor and that whole sequence with the rednecks and that I'm a man song playing. I mean, you watch that and you're like, oh, my God, he is such a great editor. The the cuts in that are brilliant from the, you know, the sirens of the cops to the cops lining up to kind of, you know, chat and whatever. And rednecks pouring coffee and then shooting zombie. It was, it's just a brilliant little montage kind of sequence with the music cue being perfect for the action. Yeah. Anytime I want to say to someone, you know, Romero was like a brilliant editor. He's like, yeah, look at that. You can see this is a man who knows how to edit for a living. Those are the guys that killed our main character from Night of the Living Dead. You know, this is the next day for them. Just, just like, oh, yeah, we, we've been killing zombies all night. And we're about to have some coffee, do some market practice. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, they're having a grand old time up. Editing in that sequence, like it starts off and it's kind of fun. And then it gets a little darker with people being bandaged and stuff. But then immediately it all becomes fun and they're shooting everything and having the great time. So yeah, the editing in this in that sequence in particular is absolutely sublime. And, you know, to, to your point, Mike, like these might be the same characters who killed Dwayne Jones at the end of Night of the Living Dead. When Tom Savini remade Night of the Living Dead in 1990, Night of Living Dead sort of ends and then continues and it shows the next day and it starts with a helicopter sort of slowly hovering past. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's Fran and Roger and they're off to the mall. I don't know who's worse, the Rednecks or the Biker Gang. You know, both of them are these groups of people. And just once you start to get that mob mentality, people turn awful. And I think that's one reason why having this central group of these four characters is so key, because you get to see just that interaction between the four characters, as opposed to in the way that he shoots it against, here's the mob, and here's what the mob is doing. And then even the group of the police at the beginning, the I guess police are more like state troopers, they feel like, that are going and trying to take care of the business, and then just that one 
asshole who, you know, it's that old thing, right? It's the one bad apple, you know, just like the guy that, you know, killed George Floyd or two guys. Oh, the whole department. Oh, wait, no, the entire system is out of order. But no, it was one bad apple. So let's blame it all on Wooly, right? Wooly went apeshit. We were talking about that thing about, you know, the kind of reason as being, you know, rationality as being kind of this theme that runs throughout. And it's like, you know, oh, Wooly's lost his head. You know, it's like these people, everyone in Dawn of the Dead who loses their head is a person who is going to bring about the collapse that we're teetering on the edge of. You know, Romero is really clear about this. In a time of crisis, you need to be machismo, whether you be a biker gang or the rednecks, is not going to get us where we need to be. And losing your head is not going to get as well to be because you're going to be like a zombie you're going to be brainless in the same way you know and that theme runs throughout the whole story in a really interesting way even to you know peter saying to roger when they're doing the trucks you know you better screw your head on right it's just it's kind of this like little repeated refrain that runs through the whole movie that i really i really love and yeah as you say the core group is set up against the different other groups so the the bikers and and the rednecks but also within the group then you have that that kind of conflict between the ones who are kind of calm and rational and the ones who are kind of losing it bit by bit and of course fran is the most rational character of all of them yeah she right from the opening scene she says the line that not only the theme in this movie it's the theme in all of romero's dead movies we're blowing it ourselves we just can't get it together and every time these guys sort of go off to do something fun fran ends up looking like a drag because she's like preaching you know rationality but like she's always right from the beginning to the end if everyone would just follow her lead and that's just not in this group it's worldwide because that's to me the over like i said the overarching theme in all of romero's work is if we could just get it together and talk to each other and figure this out it's it's not a hard problem to overcome if we can just be logical if we can just keep our head logic we must have logic the rhythm of the editing, going back to Romero as editor, it's really fascinating. I did a little bit of an experiment on Friday where I had, I took the longest cut of the movie, which some people call the extended mall hours cut, which I think is two and a half hours. Cause, you know, to the earlier point, there are multiple cuts of this. There's Argento's cut. There was a cut when they went to con with this. There was the theatrical release. Uh, gosh, what else is there? There's that extended cut. So there's just all of these versions out there, but I took the longest cut that I could find on one screen, and then I had the commentary track with the movie, and I think that's the two hour and seven minute, it doesn't matter, but on the other, and so they got out of sync very quickly, but... To see the length of the shots were almost exactly the same between one version and the other, and that they would hit the same beats over and over again, just that both of them would cut to the next shot on that same beat. It was really fascinating to see that, and just the extended mall hours cut adds just a little bit of things, and it's so... To me, it was just not that noticeable that he was doing such a great job of editing this that it wasn't just like, oh, well, gosh, we're missing this whole sequence. This is crazy. How could this movie even exist without this one particular sequence? It's not sequences. It's shots. And just that he's adding little bits of things to it. So when it comes to the con cut versus the theatrical cut, it doesn't feel like you're missing stuff. It feels like the movies just move along at a very similar pace. I had a conversation. I watched the theatrical cut with someone who had never seen it before uh, last night, which is fantastic. And 
she was asking me like what the differences were between the different cuts. And I was explaining to her, you know, that extended cut basically has 12 more minutes. She's like, oh, it must be a lot of scenes. I was like, no, like you said, Mike, it's just little bits here and there. And she said, well, why didn't they just leave it in? It was such a quick movie. And I'm like, this movie is two hours and nine minutes. And it sort of blew her mind. Like it, it flies along. Every time I watch the movie, when the bikers show up and we get that sort of process binocular shot from the, from the roof of the helicopter, I always think like, oh my, we're at the end already? Like, come on. It is, it is masterfully edited. He does not get enough credit as it. He's as good as anybody, like as good as Paul Hirsch, who we worked with on Creepshow. Like, yeah, just fantastic. And then we talked a little bit about the Argento cut and just said it, what does it, it tries to remove a lot of the humor is what I, I get the most out of that one. And then also more of the goblins. Right. There's no, hey, you guys got a cigarette? And then they all light up cigarettes afterwards. Like that's gone from the Argento cut. Like even, even something like just the conversation between like Fran and Peter on the, on the plane, just establishing character, that's gone. But yeah, I guess Argento's idea was that this needs to be a hard, lean horror movie. That's what European audiences want, which I think is funny because evidently he ran into some censorship issues with the hard, lean version. And then when Romero sent over his cut, they passed because they got context and the humor was back in and they realized, oh, wait, this is kind of a satire. That's the thing that he was so great at, which I really appreciate about Romero, is that he was such a smart filmmaker. I also love his cameo, by the way, as a little director inside of the commercial studio. And I'm just like, yeah, this seems very natural. I'm sure that you've sat in a chair like this before. Who's on camera, too? A blind man? Great line. <laughs> great line. Having his cigarette, you know, he's chain smoking away. It's like, and his scarf, his lucky scarf that he wears. Oh, wearing. the lucky yeah. scarf. And of course, Christine Forrest, who is, she's not his wife at the moment, but soon would be, and was his collaborator for many, many years, like, and was assistant director on this movie. He's right there beside him. Sure, I'm just going to pull it out of my ass, right? And I love that they're trying to keep up this level of normality. And that's the whole thing, right? This whole movie is, how are we going to maintain normalcy in this insane world? And when they get to the mall, and to your point from earlier, I love the whole, like, <laughs> what is that? Like, we've never seen a mall before. This is brand new. And now this gets a, lie, you know, gets a laugh out of people. And then in 20 years, people again will be like, what is that thing? I don't know what that is. <laughs> We're going back there. Yeah. yeah. Tearing them all down. The Monroeville Mall ain't what it used to be. I can tell you that. No, I stopped by there one time and I was just like, oh, hey, let, let's check this out. I went in. I was looking around. I'm like, okay, if there's anything about Dawn of the Dead in here, I don't see it. But I think there is, right? You've been in that mall before, too, Father Malone. Yeah, several times. In 2013, there were still some vestiges of things like the little wooden bridge where the pie fight takes place on. That was still there. So I got to jump around on that, which is fantastic. The skylights are going to always be there. That's a feature that they cannot remove. There's on the lower level, there's like one whole hallway that is definite. It's one where they parked one of the trucks where the bikers move the truck out of the way. But that's still intact. And then a lot of features in the parking lot, honestly. But I was walking through and reached over and opened a door. And it was <laughs> it's you know, a sort of service hallway when near the end of the movie, when Peter is in the I mean, Peter's in the hallway, but Stephen is in the elevator and he's firing the gun and they cut to Peter like hearing it. That hallway was there and was picture perfect. I nearly lost my mind. <laughs> it is so strange when you go to places where movies were shot, especially movies that you're so familiar with, and you're just like, am I in the movie now? I remember mounting the steps of the uh, the St. Louis Public Library because I knew Brain from Escape from New York was in there and pounding <laughs> on the door. Uh, Maggie! 
I'm amazed that there isn't any kind of permanent memorial or plaque or something in the mall to say this is where, you know, Dawn of the Dead was shot. Maybe there is, Father Malone. Maybe you can tell me. I don't know. I had heard that there was a sort of a store slash gallery within the mall with props. And when I got there, they had moved to Evans City where Night of the Living Dead was filmed and they opened the Living Dead Museum. So on my next trip, I went to Evans City, which is great because it got to go into the, the cemetery and, you know, fool around there. But they were closed. So I wasn't able to go then. And then <laughs> the last time I went back, they had moved back to the mall, but weren't open yet. And I was there for a very brief time. But it is my understanding that within that particular museum rests the very elevator when they destroyed pennies, these guys got the elevator and it's there and you can go inside. I know if I step inside it, I'm going to die, but I'm going to go and do it. <laughs> and we should talk a little bit more. We mentioned Fran before, and I still wonder if uh, either Stephen King named Franny from the stand after her or if Romero named Francine after Franny, but it might just be a coincidence. But we've got her. Also, we've got their three main male characters, Stephen, Peter, and Roger. And I mean, of course, for me, Ken Free as Peter is like the guy. I just, I've always loved Ken Free. He's so wonderful. But the other two guys are no slouches either. They, all three of these guys carry in different aspects of masculinity and bring something interesting to the party because they, I love all three of these guys and all three of them have such distinct looks too, which is nice. They're not just generic white guys that they really have something going on. One of the really interesting things that Romero does in this movie, watching it again, is um, he really gives you character through action. And a really great example of that is when they land the helicopter at the gas station and they're trying to refill it and there's like about four different zombie attacks happen kind of all back to back one after the other. But the way each character deals with it is really fascinating. So you have Stephen, who's kind of the less, the least kind of um, well-equipped in terms of like military skills or gun skills or whatever, is trying to shoot a zombie and keeps missing it. And then uh, Roger comes along with his, you know, M16 and just, you know, knocks him out of the way and just blasts the zombie straight in the head, one shot, whatever. And you, you understand from these little moments of kind of action like that, you're like, okay, yeah, I see where these, I see who these characters are without you even needing to tell me. You're kind of revealing their character through action in a really, a really brilliant way. The same when you first meet Ken Foray's character, you know, in the projects and he's dealing with Wooly, who's lost his mind, who's being completely racist and killing everyone. And just the way, the gravitas of the man and the way he stands and the way he then moves after he shoots Wooly and is just like, you know, daring anybody to kind of have a problem with him. You're just like, oh yeah, this guy's a badass. I completely understand it. So yeah, Romero is brilliant in doing that in terms of revealing character through the action sequences. The movie starts with Fran and we started in sort of media who were supposed to be telling us what's going on. And, and that's all chaos. And we're watching it through her eyes. And so now we know that the world is really bad. But when we get to Roger, who's with the police, so now we should be totally secure. There should be no problems at all. After Wooly is killed, before they go to the basement, there's a shot of, of Scott Reiniger just sort of wiping the tears from his eyes, which might be from tear gas, but probably aren't because this is the worst nightmare anyone has ever imagined. And the utter despair on that guy's face, just one shot, like, you know, not only clues the audience in like how bad our situation is, but shows the depth of the feeling of these characters. And that carries over. Like once we get, once these four 
four get together, like, you know, they're a kind of family and I really like each of them, even though they have some failings, you know, like Stephen is not the most adept at dealing with the zombie apocalypse. He's he really just wants to go back to the old ways immediately. At the same time, like Roger's kind of this hothead character. When I was a kid, I loved Roger because he's kind of like the Luke Skywalker, you know, just like or Han Solo even sort of running around like a rogue and having a great time. And, you know, and then as I got older, of course, Peter became it because he's wise and awesome and he's a badass. But I swear, the later I get in life, the more I identify with Steven and all of his <laughs> terrible choices. And and I just feel for him like he can't get a break like He's the, he, they really, they really are like the last people on earth. He asks Fran to marry him and she's like, no, even if you were the last man on earth, it's really true here in this situation. And, and I know that's sort of her repudiation of the old society that needs to be gone now. But like, what, what a blow to that guy. It's like all he had left, really. Now it's just the mall, right? He turns out to be a brilliant zombie. He's like the missing link. He's like the one whose instinct kicks in. He's like, yeah, okay, I'll lead you all to where you need to go. You know, in in that that kind of um that way of Romero has his evolution through his movies, where he's like, okay, yeah, slowly the zombies are getting smarter and smarter. You know, Stephen's like one on the link before Bub in in Day of the Dead. You know, absolutely like, straight line to Big Daddy. Stephen, with the way that he pulls his leg when he's a zombie, the way he's holding the gun and everything, I just I love the physicality of him when he's a zombie. And I love the physicality of Roger when he's a zombie. That look on his face, he just looks so surprised. Because as he's dying, he's just like, I'm not coming back. I'm going to try my best. I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. And then when he's back, it's like, oh, shit. And just the way that he's moving his eyes around is brilliant. I love that. Yeah, the, the most energetic character in the movie has the most still zombie performance, and it is the most chilling. I love when they're carrying him around in the wheelbarrow, and he's shooting. <laughs> he looks so pathetic when they're pulling him around, and just like, okay, here we go, we're cleaning up the mall. Oh, man. <laughs> My girlfriend, what, during that sequence, went, they're in a mall, can't they get him a wheelchair? <laughs> I'm like, no, well, that's way more fun. Push me, I'll shoot all the zombies for you. Yeah, just how they're, again, trying to get that normalcy back, you know, Stephen proposing marriage, just the way that they're like, oh, we're here in this mall, it's this wonderful microcosm of America. I love when they go into the gun store and there's that jungle music playing, like suddenly they're on safari, I'm like, what the fuck is happening here? This is great. The theme from the movie Hakari. I believe it's a, ju- a, jung- a jungle picture back in the day. Again, the editing, what a great sequence. It builds and builds and builds and has one of my favorite lines of any movie ever, which is the only person who could miss with a gun like this is the sucker with the bread to buy it. <laughs> and eventually they start to become so materialistic. I love when they're like taking all the money and everything. And I'm just for what, you know, what, why are you guys doing this? Why are you dressing up in these nice suits and all this kind of stuff? There's that beautiful, but failure of a dinner where they're having, you know, dinner over candlelight and all this. And then compare that to just a few shots later where they're having dinner. And it's basically on like TV tables and they're inside of a tiny little room. So they are just like experimenting with this very, you know, highfalutin world but then it's like no we're much more comfortable eating our meals on a tv tray in front of this television set where you've got the the one-eyed commentator who's just yeah why don't we bomb all the cities with our nuclear weapons why not you know that guy in particular when i saw him as a young person i i already knew who francis ford coppola was sort of vaguely and i thought like francis ford coppola has lost his mind 
Richard France, I think is that guy's name. He was in the crazies uh, and he's spectacular. Like this is exactly what we would expect from a scientist at the end of the world, right? Like you're all a bunch of dummies. You didn't listen to anything we said. And now we're just going to have to either bomb the cities or we're going to have to start feeding the dead. That's what we, that's what we've come to. Yeah. And he's telling a lot of uncomfortable truths. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear what he has to say. No, everyone's still treating it like a talk show. It's just so insane. You know what? This is this is the power of this movie that still lingers, right? Because it, it was really interesting. I haven't seen it for years, and we watched it for this. And of course, this is now like post COVID nineteen. So I was just like, okay, this is actually it's really fascinating. That and Mike, you were talking about this. Like they want everything to be back to normal as quickly as possible. So they try and turn them all into you know the normal world and lock all the zombies on the outside and pretend they don't exist, pretty simply. And it's just like, well, that's this is clearly the human response to crises. Whatever the crisis is, we all have this rush to normality, which is what we saw during the pandemic. Which is, you know, everyone was just like, can it just be over now? Can you know, t- you know, stop wearing masks, don't have vaccines, whatever. We're just going to pretend that everything is normal and we're going to try and ignore the elephant in the room whether it be you know airborne virus or zombies or whatever and this is clearly you know this is clearly something speaks very to a deep-seated part of human nature i think which is why i think the movie still has incredible power even today and you know let's face it this is the 21st century i don't know if you guys would agree with me but my experience of the 21st century has been one crisis after another from financial crises to crises with democracy to crises with viruses the climate crisis whatever we're in this like this moment in history where it's a series of rolling intersecting crises and systems are collapsing and you're like well what's a good index for that in terms of like art and it's like zombie movies are perfect aren't they i mean they basically tell you zombie movies are kind of like a rehearsal for how not to act at the end of the world you know so um so i think dawn still has like amazing power from that from that regard i talked a little bit about the two groups the rednecks and the bikers and you really get to see our survivors or at least the men survivors acting like those two groups you've got the target practice that they're doing with the mannequins and then i found it interesting that there's kind of a tie between francine and the mannequins because there's the one part where she's putting on all the makeup and there's the mannequin head there and her hair looks almost exactly the same as the mannequin head then you've got the guys who are shooting at these mannequins like the rednecks were shooting at the zombies and then you've also got like i said before the way that all the men are taking the money from the mall And then when the bikers come in, what do they do? They're taking that one zombie who's got all of the jewelry on and taking all of her jewelry. And it's like, what are you doing? Why are you going after material goods right now? These are meaningless. This is a whole different. It's like what you're saying. Like all of these people were just so busy polishing the brass on the Titanic that they didn't see the iceberg coming. And these guys are the exact same. They're just like, oh, cool jewelry. Let's take this. Oh, money. Let's take this. It's like money is useless. I love that shot in Day of the Dead where it's at the beginning and you have that like kind of dust devil of money where it's like the little funnel cloud and and all the money just flying around because it's like it's totally useless guys this means nothing anymore same thing with your jewelry same thing with your fancy stuff the only thing that seems to matter anymore is guns and i really appreciate that at the end when they get in that helicopter he peter's giving away his gun there there are no guns anymore they're off on a whole new thing like we're really trying to break with the old ways and you know who knows how much fuel they have left One of my favorite shots in the entire movie occurs right after the sort of initial foray into the mall where Steven and Peter and Roger end up having a bit of an adventure while Fran is being menaced by the Harry Krishna zombie. Once they've taken care of him, 
Stephen is talking to Fran and, and ignores the trauma and immediately goes into this speech about like, wait, do you see all the great stuff we've got? And the look on Fran's face is the look of everyone on the planet at that point. Like the stuff like this, some, a human being just revived and tried to eat me. We've got problems here, folks. When they are worshiping the stuff and then the bikers come in and they're destroying the stuff. And I don't know who's better. Because really, there's no reason, you know, you've got the one guy throwing the little TV at the other TV and then smashing the big TV with the sledgehammer. And it's like, yeah, guys, TV is just about to be a thing of the past. They come to a point where they're like, there hasn't been anything on TV for three days. Why are you still looking at it? And might come back. It might come back. You know, it's like, what no. a great moment in the movie, right? Yeah. It's one of my favorite moments where that he's still clinging to it. Like, right. Yes, there will be another television program. Maybe it'll be a, you know, a, a sitcom, uh, right? Like everything's fine, right? Oh, that wish, that wish to get back. It's just like you said, Jamie, just like we have to get back to normalcy. We will do whatever it takes. We'll ignore the problems and the problems are very multitudinous <laughs> we've got just that never-ending supply of zombies that are always there they want back in the mall and just that whole thing of seeing the zombies walk around the mall is such a chilling image and just that they have been programmed we have been programmed as people this is a place to go this is what you do this is the verge of you know when mole culture really becomes a thing like this is what are we just a few years before fast times at Ridgemont high and just how quickly we go from what is that thing oh it's a shopping mall to this is where kids go. This is where all the people go. This is where things happen. Think about all the movies that have been set in malls over the years. It's just remarkable. Even smaller things like the mall scene at Commando, things like that, or Time Cop. There's always these mall scenes that we have just because it was such a part of the fabric of our lives. And it's so much a part of the fabric of our lives that this is where the zombies go after they die. And it's just like, nope, this is where we want to come in. It's not like... It feels like with the remake, which we'll talk about a little bit, it feels like the remake is more like we know that there are living beings inside of there. and We want to get that living flesh. Whereas with the original, the 78 version, it feels much more like this is just where we want to go. This is what brings us as zombies comfort. Romero's sort of innovation with the zombie, because prior to him, it was just sort of the Haitian voodoo connection, which I like that. Peter's grandfather was, in fact. So Romero sort of like papers that over like, yes, we know about those zombies. These are a different kind of zombie. These zombies basically just want to eat, but really they just want to wander around wherever they want to. And they want the freedom to do both. It is a deliriously, deliriously American take on a monster. So working class in Pittsburgh. And thank God he was from there because that becomes everything with, with, with them. And it's also why they're going to win. Because we're as disorganized as we are, like the theme of if we could just be logical and deal with this unemotionally is the theme throughout these movies. But at a certain point, we're not going to be able to get it together. And the fact is, the zombies are going to win. It's their world now. It's just how you choose to live out the, the last of your days. Our society is over. That's kind of the other thing I love about Romero movies and the zombie progression. You talked about it, Jamie. Like, you know, we see that we see them slowly getting smarter and smarter. And of course, Romero, when he started, he had that uh, the what was the uh, 
the Anubis trilogy was the idea. So in the first one, it's the problem. In the second one, they've sort of harnessed the zombies. Humans are harnessing the zombies. And then in the third one, the zombies have taken over. And it's just they're hunting down the last of humanity. It is so bleak. But at the same time, how can we not love these zombies? You don't want to run into them while you're breathing. But like they don't really have they're not destructive. <laughs> Much less destructive than those bikers. That's for sure. Yeah. Like terrible give it to them the bikers who want to humiliate the zombies with that huge pie fight i'm like what the fuck romero has is quite misanthropist i think you know he has quite a bleak view on humanity and you know the, the great line from dawn of the dead is when there's no more room in hell the dead will walk the earth and the thing you have to stop and ask yourself is like well why is there no more room in hell it's like because we're all so bad you know we've all gone downstairs you know there's no redemption for us as a species. You know, as if we are God's creation, then God is really seriously pissed with us. So, you know, it's uh, it's not good, you know. As, as, a, as a commentary on the state of um, human society, Romero's movies are very bleak. But I think there's hope there. I think there is a little nugget of hope at the, the end of it in terms of like, you know, maybe there are different ways of living and different ways of being and maybe we can do something else. So. We can certainly step aside and give them their their due and go live apart which is the only solution really like start a new society separate from the old one because the old one belongs to them now and you know the other innovation that romero innovated was we never get a reason for this plague i mean there are the religious implications of it and he kind of touches on it slightly just to, to give an audience some kind of explanation in night of the living dead that it's this returning venus probes radiation might be doing but he discards with that entirely here this isn't a situation where zombies since then, where it's a virus or you get in, you're going to become one of them. No, you die. You become a zombie. That's it. <laughs> and we don't need the explanation because that's not what the movie is about. It's about dealing with the problem. And he's the only filmmaker who really seems to sort of deal with our reaction to this problem. The rest just kind of take us on a fun ride. Yeah, because I want to say in the remake, it is if you die of natural causes, you're dead. But otherwise, if you're bitten, then you will die from that and you will come back as a zombie. It's just a matter of time. Boo. And I hate, yeah, I hate that. I mean, I hate the, the lack of imagination that that entails because it's just like it just becomes mundane and boring. Whereas the idea that the very mechanics of life and death have kind of changed on us and that our whole understanding our scientific rationale for the world is completely wrong and we need to rethink it all over again as father malone says you know we're now living in a different world the old world that we think we're living in is no longer here anymore i think that's far more scary that's what you know if you're talking about the the raw visceral power of romero movies i think that's what it is and i think the remake really made a mistake that scene where they're like oh wait don't shoot her yet she you know she died of natural causes let's see if you know if whatever and you're like oh oh it's not coming back okay yeah that's actually you know you pulled out one of the one of the really fundamental planks of what makes these movies scary that remake felt like it was set in the mall just because the first one was like there was no attention to it there's no thematic through line with the mall it's just like a place where people gather and and when the movie was made mall culture was already dead and they didn't even comment on that yeah, I think the idea of the dead crawling out of their graves, especially in the in Night of the Living Dead, that's super scary. Or you even go to Return of the Living Dead and the way that they're coming out of their graves. And then, you know, they come out and they're, as they say, all messed up. So <laughs> you get to see just how people died, how they lived. It's just the snapshot of them, which is just, yeah, it's so horrific. And, and, you know, like you were saying before, Father Malone, the idea of them just never stopping, just always coming for you and just 
wanting their lives, like you were talking about, they they want to do this. And the whole idea of that Anubis trilogy that you're talking about, it sounds so I am legend. You know, just that idea of the human's time is over. Humans will become a thing of the past. They will become the legends. They will become the boogeymen that the zombies then talk about in their lives later on. If the zombies, you know, learn to talk. I mean, obviously, we're getting there with those characters, with Bub, with Big Daddy. So they're forming their own new thing. They're doing their thing. And meanwhile, humans are desperately clinging on to all the stuff that they have. I love the one guy, the, my favorite. I don't know why it really resonates with me. The guy who, I want to say they are also robbing stuff and they meet them right around the time that they're getting on the helicopter. And they're also, I want to say, like officials, like police or something. And they just robbed a place and they're like, oh, we're going to go to an island. The guy's like, which island? Any island. I just love that guy. And I love his delivery, that like look of confusion on his face. Just like any island. (laughs) I love that in the remake that they end up trying to go to an island. But no, it's it's inhabited. Over on with zombies, right? Because it's got to be faster and more intense and they got to run at you. But they'll pause for dramatic effect at certain places because hordes of flesh-eating zombies that are very fast will do that. Convenient. All right, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Francine herself, Galen Ross. After that, we'll talk with John Amplis. And finally, we'll hear from John Towson, the author of the Devil's Advocate book on Dawn of the Dead. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Hey, fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Tell me a little bit how you got into acting. Was Dawn of the Dead your first role? Actually, Dawn of the Dead was, was really my first professional role that I think George found out about that much later that surprised him. It was really, I was, I was not just learning, but it was certainly an experience to be cast as the female lead and my real job and to be on a feature film like that. And I mean, nobody knew what, what was going to happen with Dawn. Certainly even, even George didn't know. I mean, we were, we were doing this crazy zombie film in, in, in a shopping mall with crazy special effects and zombies eating God knows what flesh in in basements and who knew what it was going to be. Um, But it was was an audition I had because a friend of mine who was an actress said, oh my God, they're looking for blondes. And I was really blonde at the time. So I went in and I auditioned. I didn't know who George was. I never watched Night of the Living Dead. I was not a horror fan. They always scared me. My sister and I used to watch Remember the old Sammy Terry? There were the television shows that, you know, he would have these midnight shows on television and it would be Sammy Terry. We'd watch it for the first 10 minutes and then run to bed. You know, that would be, would be it. 
Anyway, so I did this audition and it was a monologue I remember from this this play and the playwright's name escapes me, but it was about being safe and I changed it a little bit, just the variation and the idea was is that two people are on a sidewalk and one says to the other, do you feel safe? And the other one says, what do you mean safe? And, and then they go on and they say, well, safe if you turn around and wave and then you're you're killed in an in, in an accident and then are you safe you know what is safe it was i finished the audition and george looked at me and he said oh i'm so sorry and i said what do you mean he goes i'm so sorry that your friend was killed on the street i said no 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 george i was acting I was, it was acting it was it was not no. it was a great monologue and george was a little impressed then. <laughs> I think I scared George. I'm trying to think who who was was Jean. Um, you know, he was he's a playwright and he's a Facebook friend of mine after all these years. And I actually emailed him or messaged him and said, you know, you've changed my life, you and your 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 uh, <laughs> your uh, monologue. But he was never knew that that would have had the result of that and i'll find his name because he was great anyway that's how i got the job did you grow up in the pittsburgh area i grew up in indiana and then california monterey and then new york and i was a poetry editor and managing editor of poetry magazine called anteus and echo press which i think echo press still is in existence today it's one of the premier publishing companies of great writers and i met somebody i think it was a weird thing i was horseback riding and i was riding with we were taking lessons one was kelly bishop who ended up starring in chorus line and somebody else and i was enthralled with acting and so i started acting class and that's how that began so what was your experience like on the film in the beginning i was totally terrified because i had not done this kind of thing before. So I was, I mean, I'd taken a lot of acting classes and I had some small theater credits, but nothing like this. And and then to be cast as the lead, you know, there was the responsibility of being the only girl. In the beginning, it was it was frightening a bit. We were doing all the exteriors in the beginning. So my first day of filming was on the rooftop. We were, I was shooting the zombies from the rooftop. And so Mike Gornick was filming and that was my first day of filming. And I had the rifle that, you know, the blanks were in the rifle. And I just heard action from George and I started shooting and then I heard cut and then I heard Mike Gornick scream and he goes, tell her not to aim at the cameraman you know it was like oh well i didn't you know i realized i mean it's interesting what blanks can do right a little wild there most of my work in the beginning was there was very little outside most of it was the guys so i had a lot of days just waiting for the next scene but most everything i think that the a few things with the helicopter and that little helicopter that little airfield was outside and up on the roof was outside and then that was it because everything else that involved me was in the mall so we had that break over christmas because they had the christmas decorations up and they had to take the break and that's when i went back and took my acting to my acting class my acting teacher at the time was a woman named Mira Ostova, who was this amazing Russian woman who was a little bird like a woman and came from the Moscow Art Academy. 
or Dramatic Academy, whatever they called it. And she was Montgomery Cliff's coach. I mean, she had some heavy hitters in her, her time. And so what you would do is you would come and it would be a group and everybody in the group would bring a little bit of the script that they were working on. And she would work with you on the script in the groups. Everybody would take their turn. So it came to me and there were people who still remembered that class. where she And I brought in the scene with the Hare Krishna zombie. I had to explain to her, you know, she was like, what zombie? What is zombie? You know, what is zombie? And in this Russian, and she's like, this little tiny, what is zombie? And everybody was trying not to laugh. And then she treated it incredibly seriously. You know, it was as if she was coaching me as if I, she was coaching Chekhov. It was very funny. And then I came back and I had a little bit more security with my role in, in once we were in the mall. And I had a lot more to do then, of course. And then one of the things that developed the, the balance between the men and the, and, and the female characters started to become uneven. Their bonding and their coolness and, you know, hanging out. I mean, it really resembled, you know, the guys in real life in, in a way, you know, who wanted to hang out with the girl. And so felt isolating, but I also felt, you know, I told George early on that I didn't want to be the actress who screamed or cried or panicked in the corner. And this was an early time. It was before, you know, women had taken over these roles like Sigourney and Alien and then the Hamilton and Terminator. I mean, women were still, you know, the sidekick, the frail person wasn't until later, you know, or at very near that time that women started to be the protagonist. So we had to find the balance there. And I remember saying to George that we needed something else in the script. So George went back, you know, in a night or two and came back with the script. And that was the lines where he wrote, you know, I would have made you all breakfast, but I don't have my pots and pans, which was my favorite line. And you know, I want to learn how to fly the helicopter and to shoot and, you know, all of those things, needing a gun. And of course, all the guys are eye rolling. But, you know, that's where that character turned. And I gave it to George, decided to find a way to put it into a script. You know, it wasn't enough that I was just acting and he, we needed to have the line. So that was a that was a big turning point, I thought. Yeah, I love your character in that you are right and everyone else is wrong. And I'm sure you've never been in a situation where there have been a lot of men around and you're saying what really needs to be done and the men are just ignoring you. Yeah, no, never. <laughs> I never in a situation like that. No, I think every, yeah, every woman has been in a situation like that. I mean, that's why the lines needed to be written because there wasn't any way that it could just be acted out. You know, I mean, you look at, other films that were, you know, if it's Alien or or Terminator, I mean, I think of those because they were at the same time. That, those scripts are very, very heavily weighted to the woman. The men, especially in those scripts, ended up being ineffectual, you know, or or you know, redundant in some way. The men in, in Dawn, maybe David, not so much because you know he was always want to be, you know the guy, but the other two were obviously, you know, intent characters. So they were, they were very strong, but the woman had to be, she had to find her own path. How much of Francine was on the page and how much of it were you bringing to it? How do you actually find a character like that? 
I think Francine was pretty much written. And George had a clear idea of who she was and, and the words were there. So I think it was pretty clear. I mean, in terms of what I could bring, obviously, was something, but that was me. But George had a clear definition of uh, who these four characters were. More than I think in, in many, in some, I think more than in any other of his films, they were the most defined. How was he to work with as a director? Oh, George was amazing. George was generous and kind and thoughtful and sweet. I mean, all the things you can think of in horror, but incredibly considerate with actors, always letting you, and he would never be dictatorial in, in on the set. He would, you would feel that if he didn't love something, it would be very, very subtle, you know, gesture or something about the way that he would project something. So if you said, should I do it again? And there would be this little, you know, which means you don't have to, but yeah, if you want to. Uh, And I thought it was really interesting because when he progressed to bigger budgets like Creepshow, which I had a small part in, but I had a fun time with you know, he's working with some very, very heavyweight dudes. Um, Hal Holbrook, Carrie Nye, Vivica Linford, people that have had, you know, long histories of working with the best directors, Fritz Weaver, in theater and, and, and in film. And they all adored working with George. So that, I mean, they came with some trepidation, I think, in not knowing what it was going to be like. And what they found was a director who totally respected them and their craft. And they, and E.G. Marshall, for God's sake, you know, I mean, who, who's bigger than that? But they all came away feeling, that, you know, this was a terrific experience. What did the movie end up doing for you? Not much. I mean, initially, for most of us, the guys too, I mean, it was, it had it amazing following and had a lot of popularity and yet it was very much categorized as a horror film and so as an actor you know agents and casting directors didn't take that credit seriously oh well you know they would just dismiss it as yeah but you were in a horror film that doesn't count you know did you have a television series did you have a feature film so it was not considered um, a serious acting credit. And we had a lot of problems, you know, just using it to leverage the next step on our careers. And then, of course, what's interesting now is that now, you know, after all these years, it's like, oh, my God, you were in Dawn of the Dead, you know, so it's like, it's like wine, you know, <laughs> it gets better. I mean, I'm not an actor anymore. So it doesn't matter to me. But it's always fun. And it's I always say it gets gets points for my friends, kids and grandkids, you know, they go, oh, my kids said, oh, my God, you know, Galen Ross and Dawn of the Dead, you know, the parents may not know. Still. So it's it's a funny thing. Was there ever any talk of you coming back for Day of the Dead? No, no. George used characters in that sequential way. That you know, there was an invitation to be in the remake of Dawn, which I took down because I felt that it wasn't George and it wasn't a vision. So I didn't see any real reason to participate in it. You have done so much just aside from acting over the years, producing and writing and directing, how did you make that transition? 
It was funny because I think it happened at Creepshow. I was in the, you know, in the drowning scene and I'm buried in the sand and they, George has this wave machine coming over me and I'm very wet. <laughs> I mean, I was safe. I had a wetsuit on. It was all planned. And I, you know, if I was really drowning, I think George and I had some, you know, emergency word that would get me out. But yeah, I remember seeing George sitting cross-legged on the beach in his parka, you know, very dry. And I looked at him during between one takes and I said, I think that's where I want to be, where you are behind the camera. So what I did was instead narrative films, I ended up beginning in documentary films. And and I was actually I was directing theater. I had moved from acting to directing theater and I was doing a lot of work at the place called the West Bank Cafe in New York that I think had an amazing talent. Alan Adams Sorkin started there. So many people started at the West Bank Cafe that Lewis Black had, you know, that that was his place with Brand Forrester and Rusty McGee. Anyway, it was, I think they did something like a thousand one act plays in in 10 years. It was a great place to work. Everybody went through the West Bank. I was directing there, got involved with an organization that I thought I'll do a documentary about them. It started out very simple and that was my first one. And then uh, my work has been in documentaries ever since. How do you pick your projects? Sometimes the projects pick me and I sometimes pick them. Usually I find that something attracts me to a project. I mean, I it was funny. I did a, the documentary on 47th Street in the Diamond World and Christie's and all the auction houses. And it was because a fellow actor uh, was earning his living, Harvey Liebman, was earning his living as an actor by cutting diamonds alongside his father. And he kept saying, you should come up there and check this out. And I came and it was this amazing world and I had access to it. So we filmed it and it became went to Berlin Film Festival and was on POV and PBS. And so it had quite a ride. And then other films, I did the film on the Swiss bank and the Holocaust accounts. And then I did a film, lots of different films. Killing Kastner was one that ended up at Toronto Festival and on BBC. I was doing the film about the Swiss banks and how they kept the Holocaust, the money from the Holocaust survivors. And this woman went to Switzerland to look for her money and she was on the Kastner train. And I never heard what was the Kastner train and who did that. And a lot of people said, no, 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 it's too controversial. Stay away from it, which made me, of course, want to do it. And it was about the Jew who negotiated with Eichmann to save thousands and thousands of lives. And it became very controversial and he was assassinated. And it was it was a big film. So that that ended up in Toronto and it had a great theatrical release around the country and 11 countries. It was it was quite a quite a, a ride on that. And then now I'm working on several different films. Well, a boxing film that I had started like 20 years ago that is finally near done called Title Shot. And we're actually going to do a sneak preview of it at this great gym in Brooklyn called Gleason's Gym, where it all started. And so that's exciting. I did two films in China that I co-directed. That was exciting to be there. One was executive produced by Ai Weiwei. So, yeah, so it's been, I mean, one of the things that doing documentaries like this, I did Russian Brides, 
And that was that was great. Seven hundred women in a hotel room with seven American, six or seven American guys looking for wives. You know, it's allowed me to travel. It's allowed me to walk into these worlds that I never, never would experience. You know, in any other way. I can't even imagine the red tape involved with shooting in China. Basically, there is no red tape because you don't tell anybody. <laughs> I mean. In Beijing, it was easy, you know. I mean, it's so, you know, you're not... It's only... China was only difficult. We had one political film. That was the one that, that Weiwei exec produced called Shimei, which is on Amazon now, um, that was in very, very rural China. So when we were there, you know, the local authorities identified us very quickly and made us leave. So, and they don't, you know, anything that's political or investigative, they don't want foreigners to do. Oh, and certainly, even if you're Chinese, you have to be very careful. We were careful about, you know, I think we got out of the the village, drove away, and one of my drivers had hidden the external hard drive down his air cooling filter system. I don't know where he did. He just said, it's safe, it's safe. And it's ironic because we had one of our drives sent back to us via Hong Kong, which we can no longer do anymore. So this was only 2016, 17, 18 when we were filming there. And it's already become much, much more restricted. And, and I mean, what's coming in China now is, is uh, who knows, you know, and she is going to be named premier for the world for the rest of his life. But um Beijing was, you know, it was great. Beijing is great. Nobody really paid attention. It was only, you know, if you were careless. I found Russia much more, much, much more intensive and oppressive to film there. I filmed in Poland. I, I mean, I filmed in many different countries in North Africa, but Russia was, ironically, Russia was the place I couldn't wait to get out of that I never wanted to return to, which seems pressing. <laughs> I am so curious about this film, Sapiro, the man who sued Henry Ford. <laughs> you saw that, yeah. Well, it's an interesting story because I don't know if you saw Ken Burns's Holocaust documentary, which is really terrific on PBS, the, the three-part series. And he mentions it briefly that Henry Ford, of course, was, was known anti-Semite and was beloved by Hitler, surprise, and uh, in the 1920s had created a newspaper in, in Michigan, the Dearborn Independent, which was, was really created to target Jews and immigrants, but especially Jews being the, the evil of the world and blaming everything from World War I to economic crisis on the Jews. And in this, one man stood out for Henry Ford, and this was a guy named Aaron Sapiro, who was a Jewish lawyer, an orphan from California, who understood that farmers and, and agriculture could, could actually be sustained if, if they got together and pulled their resources into things called wheat pools. It's not very exciting, but the idea is that they wouldn't be controlled by the 
big markets and the people that exploited them. And he started doing it and he started doing it all over Western Canada. And Henry Ford saw that he was doing this and said, aha, you see, this is what the international Jew is doing. They're going to take away all of our food. They're going to control our, our agriculture and, and we have to stop them. So Aaron Sapiro said, no. And he sued Henry Ford. And it was a huge trial. I mean, even Hitler brought his one of his German presses to, to come and cover the trial in Michigan. And very few people know about this trial. And the fact that one man, only one man stood up to Henry Ford, who was maybe at the time, the, one of the most important people in America also thinking of running for president as well. I mean, it was crazy when people got their 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 Ford cars, they would get a copy of Dearborn Independent. Not only that, he created something that was similar to the to this booklet, the Protocols of, of the Elders. I can't remember exactly. Protocols of the Elders of Zion? Yes, exactly. And published that. So you could get that, which had every anti-Semitic... Um, tracked and and a piece of horrendous writing in it uh, that you could find but Ford disseminated it so Sapiro this so anyway this is the film and we're now I'm now going to Canada western Canada which is really great to the wheat fields where Sapiro started and meeting these farmers who can look to Aaron Sapiro for saving their farms and the legacy exist to this day. And that, and what's interesting is that they knew nothing about the trial. This is so funny. The borders, you know, in America, we know nothing about what Sapiro did that brought him to Ford's attention. And in Canada, they knew nothing about the trial that, that where Sapiro ended up suing Ford, which was huge. Is there a good place to keep up with all your projects? Yes, I mean, I'm always on the IMDb and you can go to grfilmsinc.com. For the boxing film, you can see what we're doing on titleshotfilm.com. Well, Ms. Ross, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you. And uh, I think it's really remarkable, the legacy that George has left and how he's he's... You know, you think about it, and and there's so many films that are made, so many directors, so many films that end up in obscurity, or or they're you know they become cult, but people don't really know about them. But you look at every list, you know, where it says the 100 films you have to see before you die, you know, and one of George's films is always there, whether it's Night of the Living Dead or Dawn or Day, whatever it is, that there is a respect for this this artistry. And his vision. I mean, we we have whatever you think, you know, uh, the word zombie certainly has a different kind of reference now because of George and where it is in the world. He changed the world in many ways. Uh, and other filmmakers, you know, like Tarantino and others look to George, you know, for inspiration in that way. You know, they've affected him as their films as well.
Can you tell me, how did you decide to become an actor? I was about 10 years old. My uncle Jack was in community theater here in, in Pittsburgh, and he's the one that kind of got me involved. He cast me in a play called Dark at the Top of the Stairs. So that was my first outing in that genre of community when I was 10 years old. And I imagine that kind of lit the fire and you're like, I want to do this professionally. Well, yeah, I guess the beginning, certainly. You know, I did it just because it was kind of fun for me. You know, you can imagine a an adolescent, you know, getting all that attention. <laughs> so, yeah, it was the beginning, my thoughts. I did it for a while. I did it through, you know, a few times during my teenage years up to a time I was about, I don't know, 15 maybe or so. And then I let it go, you know, and then I was just a guy in high school. Did you end up pursuing it professionally or just kind of go with the flow? And Ultimately, but it was, um, it, it took a while. I After high school, I went to the Army and I was in the Army for three years. I'm a Vietnam vet and got out in 71. And then in 1972, I enrolled at Point Park University in their theater program, which was based out of the Pittsburgh Playhouse. And the Playhouse is where I spent most all of my time. That was our training ground. Uh, Later on, I became a teacher actually there at Point Park and worked there for 36 years and retired in 2018. Not only did I teach, I was also uh, an actor during that time and a director. That's where most of my life was spent on stage, actually. I'm, I'm really a stage actor and director. I worked in my, in my profession, you know, most of my life. When was the first time that you ran across George Romero? As I said, I was in the army, so, I was 23 when I started uh, school, and then my senior year was 1976, and that's when I met George. He saw me in a production um, at the Playhouse. We talked afterwards, and he said, I have a play, I mean, a screenplay that I'm working on. I'm thinking you might be right for what I'm thinking about. But he had just changed his mind about the character because he initially wrote the character of Martin as an older person. But after seeing my my performance, he thought, well, maybe it would work as a younger guy. So that's what he did. He went away. He uh, rewrote the screenplay. And a couple of months later, I got a call and uh, he offered me the role. That's got to be pretty nice being cast as a lead in a film. Yes, yes. And especially, you know, that's what I wanted. Went to New York. I lived in New York for six years, starting shortly after I finished Martin. So I was in New York in Thanksgiving of uh, 76 and was there for six years until 82. Uh, But I would come back and forth periodically and I would do a play And then I asked about Dawn of the Dead because they started production almost immediately after Martin finished. And I said, I just want to be around. And so, you know, George let me be around. 
I did some of the casting for it, worked with the cast, uh, did that kind of stuff and would just be there. I just wanted to be around and learn more about film business. Can you help clarify all the rumors I hear about this longer version of Martin, what the backstory is behind that? There is one. Supposedly it was just found. I have not been really involved in the uh, uh, in the hullabaloo about it, over it. I understand that it was uh, used as collateral when they were looking for location space for Night Riders, and it was used as collateral to use their location. Um, and then the film was forgotten that it was given over. Um, and then, you know, just recently, this past year, you know, supposedly it was found. Uh, and there are folks that have the family of the people that the person that the film was given to. <laughs> it sounds like they're trying to ransom it in order to make some money on it. And I don't think they're going to be very successful. I think what they should do is just give it over to Rubenstein. But it being found, and I think it was found in a barn or something, the preservation of the film is probably not, has not been, is not in good shape. What they have are three reels that are probably somewhat deteriorated, is my guess. But I'm not, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't involved in the finding of it or any of that, any of that stuff. Well, I'm curious about your perspective as far as having been in this longer version of this film and just, did you ever get to see it? What was it like shooting all this oh, stuff yeah, that yeah, ended yeah, up? Yeah, 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 I, I, I saw it. There was a lot of kind of voiceover narrative on my part that was taken out. This film actually benefited from the cut, from the new cut as it stands, uh, which is about 92, 93 minutes. There wasn't anything that would have advanced the plot or made the plot any more interesting, I don't believe. You know, yeah, George shoots a lot of film, shot a lot of film. So, and he does that with, he did that with everything as far as I was aware. So he always had options, you know. So, yeah, tell me about being kind of more than a fly on the wall. You're an active participant in a lot of the behind the scenes of Dawn of the Dead. And if memory serves, even in front of the camera for a little bit. That's true. That's true, which was an accident, a kind of an accident, really. We were When they were shooting the uh, SWAT team fighting the gang members on the roof, which was ra actually the roof of the uh, offices, of Laurel, which is George was George's and Richard Rubenstein's company here in Pittsburgh. We shot it on the roof. They needed another gang member on the, on the roof, and Savini grabbed me and put me in this bad hair and terrible makeup. Went up and and did it. You know, they just needed another another body because of the makeup. I every time I am at a convention or something. And I meet any Hispanic individual, I always apologize <laughs> for the un-PC <laughs> look of the character. <laughs> They're very kind about it, though. The, most people are very kind. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how that happened. You mentioned the casting. Can you tell me a little bit more about working with that? 
when I was in school, I met David Emge, and David was became a very good friend of mine. So David, I was able to get David involved in the film as Flyboy. I knew so many of the actors here in Pittsburgh, you know. So I was able to bring in people like, you know, Joe Pilato had a small role in it. Um, Randy Kovitz had a small role in it. So I was able to bring some some of the lesser characters into the film. And then primarily, too, we needed tons of zombies. George never called them zombies. He called them ghouls or living dead. It was not a hard job because everybody in wanted to be a zombie. So they would show up by the hundreds. <laughs> we had a makeup line where we would throw this um, kind of gray makeup on them and then hand them a costume and uh, maybe a prop or two and off they went <laughs> and filled up the space. And a lot of our, a lot of the kind of main zombies, like um, the nurse zombie and the Hare Krishna zombie, they were all people that uh, you know, in in and of themselves, became famous themselves in the movie. All of our friends, anybody who wanted to to be a zombie, could be a zombie. You know, it was easy, and we'd give them a dollar and a bag lunch. That was their payment. I imagine uh, for like diary or land or any of those kind of things, if there was a call put out, George Romero needs zombies, there's going to be thousands, like you said, thousands of people showing up. But what was his reputation at the time when you were doing Dawn? He was known for his, his work uh, with Night of the Living Dead. George actually put Pittsburgh on the map as a film location. If it wasn't for him, I don't think Pittsburgh would have. It may have happened ultimately, but uh, he was really the beginning studio people coming in and wanting to use the city as a backdrop. Or Pittsburgh has an interesting kind of mix of architecture and topography that it could play as all kinds of different locations, you know. It could be rural. You got 10 minutes out of the city and, you know, you're looking at cows. You could uh, create uh, New York because a lot of our architecture has uh, brownstones and, you know, things of that nature. So he was really the beginning of filmmaking for Pittsburgh as a, as a place to come and shoot. And so it's really helped the city in, 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 in many, many ways in that regard. What was your relationship with George like at this time? My relationship with George was that work I did with him then. We became fast friends, and I went on to do, you know, four or five other films with George, altogether about six. But we, we were very good friends. I didn't know him until I met him after the play in the lobby. It was the first time I met and shook his hand. I knew of Night of the Living Dead, of course. I didn't know of some of his other films. I didn't know Jack's Wife or Always Vanilla. What's interesting about those two films in particular is one of my best friends came out of that, Raymond Lane who starred in in those two movies. But it was a young relationship with George at that point. But 
Yeah, I wanted to hang around and uh, be of any kind of use I could be. And that was my idea and purpose, just to do that. So what other things did you do on the film? You know, most of it took up a lot of time doing uh, the casting and, and organizing zombies. And I would just I would just go to the set and be of any use I could be. I was kind of maybe the best boy, you know, that was hanging out and doing as doing as much and and it was all labor <laughs> picking up picking up cable and moving moving light stands and anything anything I could do to help. I, I just wanted to be a part of it. And and I was always interested in wanting to watch the actors working as well too, because being an actor you wanna you know, I pay I pay a lot of attention attention to those guys yeah i mean i was there as a a helper in any in any possible way i could be well when i went to new york there was um i got a job actually it was through christine romero because she knew a lot of people that worked at this particular restaurant um and so we gathered a lot of a lot of people from there i worked at uh, this place called lady astor's and it was directly across from the public theater uh, on Lafayette Street and the East Village. We would get a lot of Joe Papps people that would come over and uh, uh, hang out. It was it was a great place. It was a really fun place. It was a little decadent with mauve colored walls and green drapes and uh and ornate mirrors and they had a beautiful bar that was built by one of the people that later got into night riders as one of the night i worked there scotty reiniger came out of uh that group so we were able to use him get him into dawn i mean we gathered people from all over <laughs> How did you get to be the zombie in Creepshow? Tom Savini called me. They needed this corpse, Nathan Grantham. I was about, I, you know, I was still pretty slim in those days. Um, and they needed somebody slim, too, so that uh, they keep this idea of emaciation going. And so Tom called me in, and I sat under plaster for about a week to get the gloves done and the mask completed and, and, you know, to do all of the prep work for the costume. Then I went away for a month. Savini and his team put the whole thing together. I came back and I was able to put this thing on like a suit. And I shot for a week and my job was done. <laughs> but, yeah it, was Savini, yeah, it was Savini that called me to come in and do it. So I... And I was happy to do so. Unfortunately, I never met John Lormore, who played the father, the, the live version of the father. And you might notice that John is always on screen by himself. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that he wasn't he wasn't really well at the time. Everything he did was uh, a single shot of him and him alone. And unfortunately, he, he passed away shortly after the film was released. Um, so I never got to meet the guy that I played dead. <laughs> Two, four, four. <laughs> 
you were in one that I absolutely loved, and I don't think enough people have seen, Daddy Cool. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my God, Brady Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Brady was one of the people that worked here at the Pittsburgh Filmmakers, which is no longer it's uh, now extinct, but he, he worked there for years and interesting guy, really nice man, good man, odd kind of guy in many ways, but a very, a very kind and soft spoken fella. But yeah, daddy cool is a strange one. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. I don't even know what genre that is. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to categorize it. I think that's why I like it so much is because it's just all over. It is. It is all over. It's hard for me to imagine that, that, you know, we kept a a head in a jar alive. (laughs) That was an interesting movie. It sure was. What are you working on these days? These days, I'm retired. I worked at Point Park or Pittsburgh Playhouse for, like I said, 36 years. And I did all my, you know, I'm really, the truth of the matter is, I'm really a stage actor. And so, I mean, I've done, I've acted and directed in probably over 100 plays. So that's where my life really existed. Even during the time I was working with George, when I first went into New York, in fact, I came back to Pittsburgh initially to do to do a play, and I did the play, and then they were prepping for Dawn. And so after I did the play, I did they hung out with uh, the Dawn cast and crew. I came in to do a play and got involved in uh, Night Rider. But that that kind of is what went on. I mean, I would be in New York. I did a few kind of off-Broadway, way, 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 way off-Broadway things, you know. My career didn't really, you know, gel or take off um, in a way that I would wanted. You know, I was a little disappointed in the distribution of Martin. By the time we got to 1982, I was back in Pittsburgh because my parents had passed away in 79 and 81. And so I came back to kind of tie up family affairs. And uh, I was offered a part-time teaching job at at the Playhouse. And I said, okay. And so I gave up my apartment in New York and stayed in Pittsburgh. And then I worked at the Playhouse from 82 to 2018. And all during that time, which was never on my to-do list, by the way. <laughs> it just happened that way. The Playhouse was my home for both during my college years and uh, my professional career. Oddly enough, too, like I said earlier, my friend Raymond, Ra- Raymond Lane in 78 came to back from California, and he got a job there as well um, teaching I met him initially in 1973, I think. I was in college, and we had a playwright, and he was our chair at the at the time, a guy by the name of Tom Thomas, who had a small summer theater, uh, one of those tent theaters, 
in a parking lot, but it was very successful, and he used a lot of Point Parkers. And so we uh, we were doing a production of Hair, um, and I was in that. In fact, it ran for two years, two summers. And so Raymond was there. He, he had just come back from California, and he 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 worked with Tom on uh, Lenny, the you know the Lenny Bruce play. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful talking with you. Well, gee whiz, this was one of the easiest ever. Before we even talk about your Dawn of the Dead book, I'm curious about you and kind of how you got into writing about films. I kind of started off as a filmmaker. When I was in my teenage, I was started making 16mm films. I mean, I'd been a big film buff as a, as a kid and as a teenager, sort of in that, the era of the VCR. Kind of grew up with all of the video nasties in, in the UK. Just while, you know, I wanted to be a director. I wanted to be the next Ken Russell and started making films on 16mm. And at the same time, I was kind of interested, very much interested in any aspect of film appreciation, including film criticism. Uh, and I went from filmmaking into film education. I became a lecturer and be- just became more interested in writing film criticism and got involved with a magazine called Starburst, which was a magazine I used to read when I was a teenager. And it, it kind of um, relaunched about 12 years ago. And I kind of got on board with that same time, I'd always had this interest in writing a book about horror films, and that eventually became my first book in 2014. Uh, and from there, there I just kind of continued writing uh, for magazines, more books, and, you know, DVD extras. Of course, you've written about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but most of the time it feels like with global horror, subversive horror cinema, your Candyman book... It feels like you're really gravitating towards horror, and I was curious what about that appeals to you. I came to film criticism quite late, and I kind of drew on my interests in film from an earlier life. And my first main interest as a, as a, as a film buff, if you will, or as cinephile, whatever you want to call it, was horror. And that was really the genre that I sort of gravitated to first. And I guess I just got just an interest in the way the genre works and and all my my books are really just kind of investigations i suppose into different aspects of the genre Uh, and i just found that the more i wrote about it the more there was to find out about it Uh, it's just you know one of those things you know the deeper you go into something the 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 deeper you want to keep going into it but the latest book i've written is is on the film midnight cowboy so i feel like i'm going into a kind of a new phase but even then, it's a kind of a picking up interests that I had earlier in my life because I kind of learned most of about cinema between the ages of probably about 15 and about 30, you know, and that's when I really kind of was, you know, studied it really on my own but and also within higher education. Uh, so I feel like I'm kind of constantly going back to kind of like my past and, and, and picking up past interest in, in film. So I don't, I don't think I will be limiting myself to the horror genre. 
And that kind of feels like my home in a way. It's thing that I just feel that temperamentally I'm quite tuned into it, probably because I was so drawn to it as a child. It just kind of, you know, it goes into your skin in a way, doesn't it? Well, it's interesting that you're writing about Midnight Cowboy because that was from that era when X didn't mean that it's an adult film. And then the book that you know I wanted to talk to you about mostly today, talking about Dawn of the Dead, that was from the era when X was an adult film. And so there was such a big fight against that rating. As you know, the, the X really denoted pornographic content. Midnight Cowboy was initially awarded an X. And then when it got the Academy Award, the MPAA very quickly agreed to <laughs> being turned into an R. And so that kind of differentiates it a little bit from Dawn of the Dead, where that was kind of slapped with an X, but it was slapped with an X because of its violence, which I think Romero and Rubenstein argued was really a political decision, because obviously there's no nothing pornographic about Dawn of the Dead, and then they saw it as being a very unfair award of an X for a film that had no pornographic content whatsoever. And, and, and as I say, a political decision largely arising because, in my opinion, the MPAA had come under fire because of The Exorcist a few years before in which they'd released it, you know, they'd given it an R, uncut. And at the time, of course, there was no age rating in place. So kids could go and see The Exorcist uncut and, and, that, and that created a lot of controversy and a lot of flack for the MPAA. So they kind of came back out and, and anything that they considered to be overtly violent, they were rewarding an X uh, for. And that, that kind of bit them on the bum in the end because, you know, Dawn of the Dead was released unrated and became such a massive financial success that it really undermined the rating system altogether and, and I think kind of helped precipitate this change in the rating system that took place in the 80s where they started bringing the age ratings i think dawn of the dead you know if, if we're talking about subversive films it was very much a subversive film from the fact that it really kind of changed the way things happened in the industry and that's the kind of tack that i took with the book uh, that, you know it was an extreme vision in so many different ways and, um, and had such a big effect on audiences but also on the way things were done in the industry at the time. There has been so much written about Dawn of the Dead over the years, but yet you still managed to uncover a lot of new things. How do you even approach a project this size? It took me a long time to think about it because I'd pitched that book to John Atkinson at Auteur for seven or eight years ago when he turned it down. And he said, I'm turning down all proposals for Dawn of the Dead because everybody keeps pitching the same idea, which is Dawn of the Dead is a satire of consumerism. And he said he was sick of kind of just reading about it uh, along those lines. So I started thinking about the film in different ways and wrote a couple of articles for magazines, Scream magazine. And as I kind of feeling my way through it uh, and doing the research into it, I started to look at it, the idea of it containing this uh, sense of extremity at its very heart. You know, it's a film about excess, you know, consumer excess, but also that whole idea of excess carried over into so many different aspects of the film's production as well and, and the distribution, the rating system. So it's really the whole idea of the film as being a film of excess in so many different ways 
that led to the book. So I think perhaps that just taking that angle on it just gave the subject matter, you know, something slightly fresh than what had been attempted before. What were some of the most challenging things about writing a book like this? Well, every, you know, everything's challenging, as you know, in terms of the research, marshalling the research, focusing the research, trying to get to grips and trying to find out what, you know, what actually happened in terms of the production and, and trying to find some kind of primary information as well. But luckily, uh, there was new stuff to be had at the George Romero Archive in the University of Pittsburgh, which had just been kind of set up. Um, so I was able to get hold of some of the kind of very first notes and jottings and synopses that Romero had written for Dawn of the Dead. Now, a lot of this information is actually held by Rubenstein. You know, uh, he's, he's got a lot of the kind of behind-the-scenes paperwork for Dawn of the Dead. So there wasn't a great deal of stuff to uncover, but there were some interesting things uh, like the kind of his original synopsis from 1974 and, you know, letters from Romero to Rubenstein and to American international pitchers who they pitched the project to uh, in around about 1974. And AIP had wanted Romero to turn it into a black film, you know, to to capitalise on the black exploitation craze of that that time uh, and Romero was pretty uh, open to that idea you know turning Fran uh, and Stephen into black characters uh, of course that never happened but it's really trying to marshal the research that has been done the primary stuff that I did but also other things that other people have done like Paul Gagne's brilliant book The Zombies That Ate Pittsburgh and and kind of marshal all of that into this over this kind of uh, overarching argument about the film's excess. So, you know, with any book, I think the, uh, the well, the books that I've written, it's always the, the, the main uh, challenge has always been to is to follow through with the premise or the hypothesis of the book. I was really glad that you would take a look at. Romero's opinions and his statements throughout the years. And to see how his opinions of his own work change was fascinating. It's very interesting from that perspective in, in that after Night of the Living Dead was released, his initial audience was, you know, basically the kind of midnight movie audience or, you know, the 42nd Street audience. And, and that's really what the film was pitched at. It was a kind of an exploitation movie. And then when it went to Europe, the, the highbrow critics started to read these sociological messages into the film. And that kind of affected Romero in subtle ways, I think, in, in that he started to think about who his audience is, his ideas about the, uh, the, the development of the, the dead movies. They grew over a period of time. He tried to incorporate, I think, some of the, yeah, some of the the the, the need for it to bring a sociological underbelly into his films, um, in response to what critics were saying. You know, one of the things that I tried to find out in the book was, Romero had claimed that he'd always had this idea for the film of Night of the Living Dead to be a trilogy, and that he'd written like a short story that was based on Richard Matheson's. I Am Legend, and he'd written that a number of years before 
Night of the Living Dead, he claims. Now, nobody can find that short story, not Paul Gagne, uh, not Ben Rubin at the George A. Romero archive. And I think we're pretty much all in agreement that the short story never existed. It was something that Romero fabricated in order to assert intellectual property rights or some kind of claim on intellectual property when when he wanted to make the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Uh, so I think I think what we can f- see here, though, that I think is very interesting is is that Romero, as a sort of you know took took ideas from Night of the Living Dead and he developed them. His thinking developed over the years, not only in response to what critics were saying, but also in response to the genre itself. Because Romero was very much an avid film goer. He was very aware of what other films were out there. You know, and he'd seen The Last House on the Left. He'd seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Cronenberg's movies. I think when Dawn of the Dead came along, he was kind of responding to where the genre was going. And he continued to do that throughout his career. One of the things I've kind of discovered as I was writing the book was that Romero's not really saying anything new. He's just picking up on what the genre is able to offer you know, he's very influenced by the 1950s science fiction horror movies. But if you look at a film like Five, which I mentioned in the book, made in 1951, it's almost like a prototype Romero movie. You've got these survivors after a nuclear war. They're all trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to make some sort of new society. Are they going to succumb to the old ways of thinking? Are they going to be able to let go of their prejudices, all of those you know, shortcomings that led to the collapse of society in the first place. And then, you know, that's Dawn of the Dead. So Romero not only was responding to the critics, he was responding to where where the genre was going in the 70s, but he was also responding to some of the whole ideas of apocalyptic science fiction and horror that had been raised in the 1950s as well. And those things are still with us, you know, when you look at the Walking Dead, for example, is very, very much following in that vein. It's almost, you know, picking up the, the the torch from Romero, and it's still talking about the whole idea of how do we fashion a functioning society after the end of this society. You know, I think Romero is a, a very important thinker with regard to science fiction and horror as an allegory of society and. His films are so important, especially now, as we kind of seem to face up to, you know, this impending apocalypse that we're always being told, you know, is going to come in whatever form it is, whether it's pandemic or a meteorite or, you know, global warming, whatever. Did you actually go to Pittsburgh for the archive? No, I, I, you know, I really wanted to go and I was in touch with the University of Pittsburgh and I was all set to go. And of course, then the pandemic hit. And, and the archive had to close. And I think during that closure, Ben Rubin and, and his assistants were actually working on cataloguing all of Romero's papers for the archive, but it was closed to researchers for a long time. And at the, at the end, I couldn't, I couldn't go. But I was in contact with uh, Rubin uh, through this and able to kind of ascertain what, what he did, what he had, you know. 
So they're, they're very helpful. And if anyone here is thinking of going, then I would definitely uh, encourage them to, because there's a lot in the archive beyond Dawn of the Dead. There's all, you know, there's a lot of stuff specific, more particularly from from Romero's later career, from Monkey Shines onwards. I think there's a, there's a hell of a lot of stuff there. So there's a lot of things for scholars to pick up on. You were talking about the influence of other horror films, but I also like that you make the case as far as Romero really couldn't make Dawn of the Dead until he had made the other films between Night and Dawn. And just that this was a path for him to take, that there were things that he had to learn in those other films before he could make Dawn of the Dead. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And that's another thing about Romero is does have that kind of auteur uh, characteristic, if you will, that his films seem to develop a theme. Each film seems to kind of take that theme a little bit further as he's kind of working towards a kind of logical conclusion to that theme. And I think in his original trilogy, you know, Day of the Dead was going to bring the whole uh, dead universe, if you will, to to a, to a culmination or a conclusion. He wasn't able to do it because he wasn't able to get the budget to to make the the original you know his original script for Day of the Dead, but a lot of the ideas from Day of the Dead found their way into Land of the Dead later on. He is one of those artists who seems to take a long time to work through his ideas. I think he started to work on Dawn of the Dead. The ideas for that around about 1973, 1974. It took him about four years to develop that. A development between, for example, The Crazies and Dawn of the Dead that is really marked. I mean, if you watch those two films together, you can see that there is a real kind of almost like a family relationship to them. And I think in a way, you know, he's very much like Stanley Kubrick in that sense. You know, if you think about Kubrick's output from the the mid-60s onwards, there's almost like each film builds on the film that came before. So you have a you have a kind of a Dr. Strangelove, which shows mankind, you know, blowing itself up. Where do we go from there? How do we avoid that? Then, well, we have to look to outer space. So then we get kind of 2001, a space odyssey, and then uh, Clockwork Orange kind of leads in for, you know, what well, what's going on on Earth at that time? <laughs> They're almost like essayists in a way, these two filmmakers. You know, you get a scholar or an essayist who will follow through their thinking from one essay to the next, and and I think that's what these two filmmakers do. And I think what makes both Kubrick and Romero exceptional is the fact that not only are they great visual artists, great visual communicators, but they're also great literary filmmakers as well, great, great, very literate filmmakers and you know how many other directors apart from Romero can you think of who who have not only skilled directors cinematographers and editors as Romero was very skillful editor almost the kind of a cubist in his approach but also great screenwriter as well you know a great storyteller you know it's very rare that you get those two Abilities, I think you know you might get a Ridley Scott who's a great stylist, but not as not a, not a writer. 
you know, maybe Spielberg, but even Spielberg's not as, as much of a writer, you know. Romero is one of my fa- favourite directors and he's got so many different facets to him as an artist. So he's, I just find him endlessly fascinating. That's one of the most surprising things about the research I've been doing into Dawn of the Dead is that original, I don't want to even call it a screenplay because it's more of a short story as far as the way that he was setting up what would become the the screenplay and that that's like uh you know it, it's very very literate you know he's he started thinking about his stories as being allegories or parables and and you know that kind of social political commentary was very upfront and he was he said it's very he said you know dawn of the dead's pretty crude you know as a it is it's very upfront but he approached the screenplay to Dawn of the Dead in a very kind of schematic way, you know, builds uh, in a kind of almost like a moral tale, almost like those EC comic tales, you know, you know, they land in the mall and then they barricade up the mall with the trucks and then they kill off everybody, all the dead in the mall. And then the motorcycle raiders come and it's kind of like their journey through materialism you know, and they kind of come out the other side of it. But the screenplay is very schematic in the way that it deals with that journey. His writing process, from what I understand, it was very, very slow. Uh, It built up his ideas over a period of time. He wouldn't sit down at the typewriter very too soon. You know, he'd make notes, he'd make little ideas on post-its and so on. and gradually built the thing up piece by piece and often took a long time and, and went through different drafts where the idea changed quite considerably, you know, and I think the same was, it was the same for Martin as well. His film Martin, that it started off being a very, very different story to what it ended up being. So yes, I don't know if he can, he wasn't like a Stephen King writer who could sit down and knock something out really quick and it'd be great. You know, it took him a long time uh, to develop his ideas. But I think that's one of the qualities of his his work is that there's so much in there. There's so many different levels in there and they're very, very tightly packed. Uh, and especially his later films, you know, like Land of the Dead, Survival of the Dead and Diary of the Dead. But screenplays are very, very tightly packed. So you can go back to those movies and watch them again and again and again because you kind of unpack them as you watch them. I mean, I've seen Land of the Dead four or five times and I keep feeling like I need to go back to see it again because there's so much in there to unpack as as you watch it. I mean, his dialogue's not great. His characterization's not great, you know, in, in the way that you might think of the great screenwriters. But I think he was a great storyteller. And his films had a lot of meaning to them. Well, I found it fascinating, too, the way that the film changed as it was being made, that whole Christmas break and the reevaluation of it from that original rough cut. Romero was still holding on to his original conception that um, there should be some sort of family relationship between Dawn and Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead was very had this extremely kind of claustrophobic feel which was one of the reasons it was so successful as a horror film. And I think Romero was kind of reluctant to let go of that at first. I mean, he wanted to talk about materialism and so on and so forth, but he wanted 
a setting that was still going to offer him that kind of claustrophobia. The original idea of Dawn of the Dead was that there would be uh, Fran and Stephen and that they would be living in the crawl space above the mall, and that would give him that claustrophobic sense. It didn't have the humour in it. The original draft didn't really have the humour in that the final film has. And a lot of it comes down to Romero wanting to do something meaningful because of his critical reputation, the idea of it having a family resemblance to Night and the Living Dead with the claustrophobia, and also that kind of very tight, schematic allegory that he was trying to create. But once he actually got into the mall and started shooting, and then he was kind of editing the footage together, there's like a vibe that the mall has. You know, it's kind of slightly ridiculous you know, the shopping mall environment is kind of slightly ridiculous. And and uh, and I think the satire of it started to come through for him. And also perhaps movies were changing at that time when he was shooting Dawn of the Dead in kind of late 1977, early 1978, because Star Wars was coming out. Movies were becoming more kind of like popcorn entertainment. So maybe that influenced him a little bit as well, that he, did, he thought, maybe I don't want to do something that's unrelentingly grim, like Night of the Living Dead. Maybe there needs to be a bit of fun in there, you know. And also, you know, he was very much an aficionado of, of, of action-adventure movies, like Hatari and, you know, movies like that. And I think there's an element of that. He kind of wanted to get in there. He just wanted to, to introduce this kind of fun aspect to the film, uh, which just does come out in, in Dawn of the Dead. You know, it's a kind of an outrageous satire. It's a fun film. It's a film that embraces you and you have fun with it and audiences have a lot of fun with it. So I think that aspect of it started to manifest itself to him as he was editing it. And of course, he changed the ending from the original conception, which he was he was he was going to have another downer ending like Night of the Living Dead, and just changed his mind about that as well. And again, it com- comes down comes down to the fact that Romero also took exception to the idea of what a lot of apocalyptic horror was that films of the fifties that influenced him, like Tarantula, you know, where the the the, the the monster, like the giant spider, terrorizes normality and then it's vanquished at the end and everything goes back to normal and it's all happy, happy ending. But Romero said, well, why, why, did you, why do you need the spider in the first place? Why do you upset the apple cart? Things need to change. The world's not the best world we can possibly live in. Things need to change. And, and that kind of anger that came through Night to the Living Dead was part of that. By the time he got to the shooting Dawn of the Dead, he realised they didn't have to restore normality in order to just have the characters survive that he wanted to survive. You know, so the, you know one of the great things about Dawn of the Dead, in my opinion, is that it goes beyond the kind of nihilism that you get in the seventies. You know, where you know everything's shit and everyone's going to die. So what's the point? You know, Romero kind of pushed past that and said, you know, actually we can change. Society can change, you know, and we can have a new start, you know, even if it's just a couple of people, you know, a pregnant woman and a black guy, you know, we, we can we can change society. There is hope, you know. So Dawn of the Dead ended with that kind of optimism that was not 
apparent in a lot of the films of the 70s. And again, that, that was a, another way that Dawn of the Dead became a kind of a game changer, I think. You mentioned his original thoughts of Day of the Dead, and I have yet to read that. Can you tell me a little bit about how that changed from his original idea to what we got, and then how that transformed into Land of the Dead? I mean, it was a much bigger idea than the film eventually of Day of the Dead became. But the crux of the idea was that there was still a functioning society after the zombie apocalypse, but it was a, a structured, very long, very strict class lines. So you, you still had the rich people who were living on the island and controlling the zombies, and then you had the kind of underclass of people who were becoming kind of zombie fodder, if you were, if you will, but they were also serving uh, the rich. And within that kind of hierarchy, you had a group of what would we call it dissidents, I suppose, people who decided they would break that status quo. And then you get a revolution, but it's not the zombies who are the revolutionaries. It's this small group of people who basically take back the rights for survival. You can see the elements of that and how that's gone into the land of the dead, where you get the Dennis Hopper character, who's like the kind of the president, if you will, of Fiddler's Green, and he's kind of running the show. And then you've got all of these uh, undesirables who are kind of at the lower lower echelons of societies, the prostitutes and the drug addicts and, and so on. And then you've got mercenaries who are being paid off by the Dennis Hopper character. So Romero was able to take quite a lot, actually, from the original Day of the Dead script and put it into Land of the Dead. But the crux of the idea is that there needs to be a revolution. Even in the zombie apocalypse, the functioning society will try to perpetuate itself. uh, And it's really up to us, you know, the normal people, to take back control of society when we get to the end days. I know with your book you really concentrated on Romero's version. I'm so curious, what did you think of the remake? I think I kind of agree with what Romero said was it kind of took away any kind of allegorical underbelly. You know, so you've got this group of characters who are in a shopping mall, uh, but there's no kind of satir- satirical aspect to it. They just happen to be in a mall. So just like the essential meaning of the film was being lost. And uh, to be honest, it didn't leave a great great impression on me i don't really remember a lot about it well i what i do remember it had a really exciting opening 10 minutes Again, i'd need to revisit it but when i saw it the first time and i did see it in the movie theater uh, and was pretty excited to see it to see what they were going to do to the you know one of my favorite films and i remember kind of enjoying it but it not really leaving much of an, an impression on me but that tends to be the way that most remakes affect me is that i just find them kind of forgettable it's almost like the thing that made them exist in the first place is kind of missing. So you talked a little bit about your book on Midnight Cowboy. Where's that at in this stage? It's with the publisher, and, I, and I'm just waiting for the proofs. It's been proofread, and I think it's pretty much ready to go, really. Uh, so it's just up to the publisher now in terms of when they want to set a release date for that. But there's nothing, nothing more to do on it from my point of view. What's next for you after that one? Over the last few years, I've been writing a lot of articles for magazines and DVD booklets on individual films, and it actually struck me 
only a few days ago that almost all of the the films that I've been writing about could be considered to be cult films. You know, films like Alice, Sweet Alice or Zombies of Morito. So I think a collection of those articles and essays would be good. I would call it 40 cult movies <laughs> because it literally would number 40 movies and essays on those movies, which it's kind of taken together. I just represent a number of years writings on, on, on cult movies. Again, I don't know really why I gravitate to cult movies, but I just think of like the kind of weird and wonderful, those weird and wonderful movies that we consider to be cult, cult films. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and all your work? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got a blog, uh, yeah, which is subversivehorrorfilms.blogspot.com, I think. Take a look there. I've, I've got an Amazon page as well if people want to check out my books. Hey, Vivian. Can I look? I can go backwards. Let me see. Hey, that's amazing. Hey. Hey, you. Honey, are you okay? Officials have declared a state of emergency. Everybody they kill gets up and kills. Residents are advised to find a safe place and stay there. I've just been informed that we are going off the air and switching to the emergency broadcasting system. Look up the road, there's a lot more of them. Why are they coming here? Maybe they're coming for us. The sooner or later they're going to get in here. Baby's here before. It's only a matter of time. It's coming. They'll find a way in. Oh, God. We are back and we are talking about Dawn of the Dead. And we mentioned this a little bit before, but let's talk a little bit about the remake, which we barely ever talk about Zack Snyder on this podcast. We did talk about uh, his cut of Justice League, uh, but I have to say that this is actually a Zack Snyder movie that I enjoy. This was the first one. I think this was his feature debut. Saw it at the theater 
And I I know I get a little bit of shit from this, but I actually really enjoy this remake of Dawn of the Dead. Now, you guys being a little bit more purist, especially you, Father Malone, you probably think I'm crazy for liking it. Uh, no, not necessarily. There's an entire generation that that is their experience of Dawn of the Dead. And if it leads them to, you know, the original, I'm, I'm cool with it. But I think there's a lot in that movie that is effective and works. I mean, I don't have a problem with any of the performances in it. I love Sarah Polly and any chance I get to see her doing anything I'm happy with. And obviously Bing Rames and the whole cast, really. And the opening sequence is fantastic. Everything up until we get to the mall I'm on board. But once we get to the mall, it just seems like a bunch of bickering characters. It's all the stuff that Romero sort of, you know, shunts off to the side and lets us know that that's occurring. And that's the problem. I don't want to deal with I don't really like any of the characters in the movie. And I don't care if they live or die. Honestly, I'm rooting for the zombies in that one. And I should be rooting for the zombies by Land of the Dead, maybe, you know, in halfway through Day of the Dead with Bub. But like, but I shouldn't be hoping that the, our lead characters get eaten immediately. And that's all I was hoping. I'd say I'm with Father Malone in terms of the first 10 minutes of the Dawn of the Dead remake. I'm like, wow, that is brilliant. That is fantastic. The credits roll, amazing credit. Then after that, I'm like, okay, I'm done now. I don't need to watch the rest of the movie. It goes downhill from there very quickly. And Romero had a thing when they approached Romero and said, you know, we want to do this movie and whatever. And his point after watching it, when he finally saw the cut of it, he was just like, I don't really understand why it exists. You know, he was just like, this is not necessary. And, you know, clear answer is it exists to make money you know i mean really that's sadly that's the reality of it so for someone like me who's you know a big zombie fan and romero fan i'm a little bit of my soul dies every time i watch that movie even though i'm like it's slick it's professional it goes like a rocket it's great entertainment but it's just like it's not dawn of the dead yeah i love those opening credits i love the use of the music in this especially you know the johnny cash at the beginning but i i'm a huge richard cheese fan so when his version of down with the sickness plays i like that montage this movie has a lot of montages there are several scenes where we are just taking care of things through montage i have to say it does seem to fall apart pretty good towards the end of it i think once they get down to the mall parking lot and they discover that the dog is immune to zombies i'm not sure why you wouldn't want to eat a dog if you're a zombie sure feels like it has to happen this movie is one of the few movies where i really like jake weber in it now jake weber is a great actor but jake weber plays a shithead so well that it is almost impossible for me to see him in a movie and enjoy him as him because he is just such a great asshole same thing with michael kelly plays a great asshole especially in this back when he had hair just him and the other two security guards but i have to say that this movie there's almost too many characters we really take that microcosm of america and expand it out and that's great you know we get to see mckay pfeiffer and his russian girlfriend and the whole baby thing which both the first time i watched it and yesterday when i rewatched it i was on the edge of my seat waiting for that birth this horrific scene but i yeah it's a little too much that we have the whole thing of the older guy and him talking about when he found out that he was gay and all this it's just like this is a little too much for this movie like that's a great character but maybe just not for this movie i just want that handful of survivors i want to go back to you know john towson talks about the movie five from the 1950s which is a great film this arch obler film 
really good and a great template for so many of these survival films. This one, though, you're talking like, what, 12 characters at one point, maybe even more? Whereas with me, I'm just like, the Ving Rhames character, the Sarah Polly character, fantastic. Andy, across the way, I love that relationship with Andy. And I love how they send the dog out to help out Andy and just all that shit that happens. That, for me, is the best part of the movie, and especially that montage when... They're uh, picking off people in the crowd in front of the mall. Like I said, there's a huge amount of zombies out in front of this mall because they smell blood, apparently. And when they're picking off like the Jay Leno zombie, the Burt Reynolds zombie, and just seeing how great Andy is with the gun, I was just like, this really works for me. I like that. It's that dark James Gunn humor that really comes through. The whole sequence with Andy in the gun shop and uh, sort of going back and forth with him. Even Romero said that that was a good innovation because Romero himself was embarrassed about the gun shop in a mall. There has never been, nor will there ever be, the type of gun shop that we get in the Monroeville Mall here. They shot it sort of separately. It works in the movie we got because it has to happen and it's right there. And we, I never questioned it, honestly. But having it across the parking lot and giving them the mission back and forth is really kind of cool. I will give the movie that. And after Andy gets bit and he raises up that sign and it's just the smears of blood. It's so fantastic. I love it. I love it. There are some really good ideas in this movie. Does it pull it off completely? No, but I really enjoy it. I think one of the things it really loses from the original is the mall itself. Like if you put, if you, I feel if I was dropped into the Monroe mall in 1978, I'd be able to find my way around because every nook and cranny of that building feels like it's on screen and you really kind of experience it kind of in a really visceral kind of way. Whereas the mall in the remake, I'm kind of like, they could be anywhere. I don't really understand how these different rooms connect up. They seem to be in one room, then another room, a different level here, there, everywhere. It doesn't It doesn't feel like a character. The, the building itself doesn't feel like a character in the same way that it did in the in the original. I think that's a real shame. It would have made more sense to be in a Costco or something. Like when I heard that they were doing a remake, I thought, oh, so it's going to be in Minnesota, right? They're going to the Mall of America because where else would you go at this point? Like what else do you have to say about malls? Well, nothing. They didn't have anything to say about malls at all. A Costco would have been great. I think you're totally right with that. And then they could have done the whole thing of them. Because that's the thing that I really liked about Dawn of the Dead is that they build that apartment, that safe space above everything. And they, you know, to your point from earlier, they kind of are the hunter gatherers and they're going down and trying to avoid the zombies. And there's that whole thing of like, we're cleaning up the mall, we're getting rid of the zombies. And it's like, okay, that lasts for a while, but eventually you have zombies in the mall and then it's more kind of, you know, going around and trying to avoid them. Yeah. And this one, the mall has been closed. So there's really not very many zombies that are inside of this mall. You get rid of the one security guard. I think there's one more that Kai Pfeiffer, jams a pool cue up his his gullet, but there's not a ton of zombies in the mall itself. So once they get there, they are very safe other than from themselves. And I think that's the thing is like that whole thing of the three security guards and the bullying that's going on with that versus the rest of the people. And then you get that other group of people that are coming in from the truck. I could have done without the whole truckload of stuff. Yes, it's great to see Matt Frewer. Always enjoy him. Him with his zombie makeup on, I thought he looked terrific. You know, he's got that naturally gaunt face already. And he's just gone so quickly. It's like, man, you got Matt Frewer in here. You know, it's like, I like that Zack Snyder likes to use Matt Frewer. 
but he's just always so quickly used and and gotten rid of. Like his character in Watchmen is like, oh, cool, you know, I love this character, and he's just gone so fast. But yeah, at least at least this is better than other Zack Snyder zombie films. This is way better than Army of the Dead. Oh my oh, god! Man. I would compare this to the original Dawn of the Dead over land or that Army of the Dead nonsense. What a what. What, what the fuck are you thinking? The robot a, zombies that are in there? What did that? Yeah, they're controlled by aliens. Maybe who knows? Who knows? Ay, ay, ay. You know what, Jamie? You mentioned earlier, like you know, watching this movie, a little bit of your soul dies as a Dawn of the Dead fan. Honestly, everything post nineteen eighty five, sort of the zombie revolution we've gotten in the past twenty years. It is. I love zombies more than anything on planet Earth, but even I was just sort of sickened by the oversaturation of it, but also like kind of annoyed that this man created this universe. He created this dystopia and this archetype and this monster and the set of scenarios that you can jump into and, and got nothing for it. Like, you know, he got less of a budget for land of the dead, his fourth in the series of movies than they got for the remake of Dawn of the dead. That's insanity. The walking dead is a constant irritation to me. Weekly. There are some very weak budgetary things inside of even this Dawn of the Dead, like the initial explosion of the propane tank where you just get that really cheap, it looks like just an After Effects thing with the fire going up, and I'm just like... With the car crashing into the, the yeah, oh, it's so bad. Did you right? guys run out of money here? But then you get that other explosion, which looks pretty good, but... There's a helicopter that flies over as well when they're on the roof of the lawn and they're like watching this helicopter fly over. And I, I was just like, yeah, okay, that hasn't aged very well. That No. <laughs> no, there's some digital effects in here that look pretty bad. Now, I I like a lot of zombie films. Of course, uh, you know, Return of the Living Dead, Shaun of the Dead. I tend to like some of the more zombie comedy type of things. You know, I talked with Jamie a few years ago. We did an episode called Deadheads. Um, I don't mind things like warm bodies, but I have to say, like, for me, like, I liked Land of the Dead, but the post Land of the Dead movies with Romero, I had a real problem with. And it just felt like by that time, he was so influenced by other zombie movies that he was kind of aping them. So the whole Diary of the Dead with the found footage thing, and I just keep wondering, like, who's driving ahead of them to set up all the lights that they need when it comes to these scenes or what is it survival of the dead that fucking zombie horse i'm just like it's really embarrassing and i just felt bad for him after a while because yeah these original four movies pretty strong and then you get such a glut of zombie movies that you can't even keep track of them like there was a I don't know if it was a remake or if it was just called Day of the Dead, but there was a TV show of Day of the Dead. There was also a Day of the Dead movie with Ving Rhames, and I don't know if he's trying to reprise the same character. And I'm just like, there's almost too many zombie movies. For a while there, in the late, early 2000s, there were so many zombie movies that it was just impossible to keep up with. But can you think of any other filmmaker who spawned something like this? I guess the only the only comparison would be like George Lucas or something. You know, you're like you're been started. You know, those that those two worlds don't really merge together to like as a comparison. But in terms of like spin-offs and spin-offs and spin-offs, that's the only thing I can think of. You have you know some great visionary who comes up with this amazing thing, and then other people go off and kind of try and repeat it in different ways and kind of recycle it and reuse it. Yeah, you know, Mike. 
to your point about like how sad it became the output, it was a law of diminishing returns, which most filmmakers tend to, to go through anyway. But I remember as fanatical as I was as a teenager in high school, in 1989, I finally got my hands on Document of the Dead, Roy Frumke's documentary about the making of Dawn of the Dead. And in order to get that documentary release, they filmed a bit of behind the scenes of Two Evil Eyes, the film uh, Romero was making with Dario Argento at the time. Uh, and in that, this is 1989, Romero is already bemoaning the fact that like, he said, you know, you used to be able to raise a couple million dollars and, you know, people would leave you alone. But now everyone and their cousin like thinks they own you once uh, once they do this. So it's getting a narrower, the ability to make these movies. And like even then I felt like, oh, no, that's that doesn't look good for Mr. Romero. And then, of course, it just it not only like did his career not sort of upswing, allow him to make the movies that he wanted to make, but then insult to injury, everyone else starts making his movies. But I think Romero was in a really weird position as a filmmaker because he's so clearly wasn't ever going to be the Hollywood filmmaker just by temperament, I think, and didn't buy into that kind of the kind of psyche that goes with that at all. Yeah, equally, you know, was part of this capitalist machine where he needs to raise money to make movies. And I think he, I think there was a really weird tension for him between his kind of core beliefs, which were a bit more kind of 60s hippie kind of countercultural kind of thing. And then also the kind of naked reality of like trying to make art like movies, which is a nakedly capitalist thing. And I think he never quite managed to work out how to put those two together. I mean, there was a stage where he had a deal in Hollywood and he was out there and he had some ghost movie called Before I Wake or something that he wanted to get made. And I think at one point, Chris Columbus was going to like come on and helm this thing. And then Chris Columbus's career took a bit of a sideways turn with Jingle All the Way or something. And, you know, it all fell apart. And it was just he didn't ever want to be at that Hollywood table. And yet I think realized that maybe he needed to be in order to get the money to keep making movies. A lot of people have that career trajectory where they start off small and then go all the way big. And, you know, maybe they keep going or they collapse. But he never kind of went that route at all. And I think a lot of it was just his temperament wasn't right for it. I think he kind of didn't didn't really feel like he he would fit in in that kind of world, you know, in any way whatsoever. And, you know, Night Riders, the movie that he makes after Dawn of the Dead, which is nights on motorbikes, jousting, recreating medieval times, is all about that kind of tension, you know, as an artist of just, do you sell out or not? And it's, you know, it's one of my favourite of his movies, actually, you know, there's no zombies in it whatsoever, but it's a, and he says it's like his most personal movie. So I think that maybe kind of ties in a lot of it. And I hear what Father Malone's saying about, you know, loads of people made a lot of money out of Romero. I was lucky enough to interview him in, I think it was like 2010 or something. And he was very like kind of sanguine about it. Just like, yeah, they're going to do what they're going to do. You know, I just do my stuff and we'll see. So, but you know, he was, he was a giant of a man. He really was. Yeah. Romero was never Hollywood. You know, can you imagine him being like, Hey babe, we'll do lunch. You know, let's go grab some sushi or something. He's more like a, yeah, I'll meet you down at the the bar. We'll have a PBR and a cheesesteak type of guy. You know, he just, yeah, he was very, very salt of the earth. It felt like, and, I always felt bad for him because I felt like he was just so close. And, you know, you talked about like some unrealized projects and there were so many, like, I can't wait. One of these days, like if we had had more time, I would have gone down to Pittsburgh and visited his archives just because there's so many projects that he was involved with that never got made. Like I would have loved to have seen his version of the stand, you know, because the stand plays with so many of these zombie tropes but yet it's not a zombie movie that whole end of the world thing 
which I love. I love end of the world movies. There's just something about it. You know, I've, we've talked about the quiet earth on the show. We've talked about other, you know, post apocalyptic movies. I think we talked about, uh, the, 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 what was it? The flesh, the devil. Oh gosh. Again, the world, the fr- flesh and the devil, the one with Harry Belafonte. That goes really well with the quiet earth, kind of like how five goes really well with this or even, you know, the Vincent Price, I Am Legend, The Last Man on Earth goes really well with this one as well. It just, yeah, Romero was involved with so many things that just never hit and just never came to fruition. And he's one of these filmmakers where I love what he did, but man, I really wish that he was able to have more. I just wish that people had been pouring money at him all the time. You know, like his relationship with Argento on this film that we mentioned before I trust you. Here's the cash. You know, do your thing. I support you. He needed a patron. He needed people to be patrons of him and just let him do his art. I mentioned earlier that he was sort of my hero. Now, he's just my hero just because he makes all of my favorite movies. But then, you know, in learning about the guy, like the sort of family of filmmakers that he put together in Pittsburgh, these sort of oddball, and I'm not denigrating their professional qualities here, this oddball Hollywood outsiders who created an entire film industry in that area and sustained them for many, many years and did so when it all kind of came together. I don't know if we've mentioned him yet, but Richard Rubenstein, his producer, is my the pairing of Romero and Rubenstein is my favorite pairing of any filmmaking duo ever, where Rubenstein was a hell of a good producer. And his attitude was, I'm going to get you everything you need. And that's it. And I'll step back. That's my job. Your job is to come up with creative. And I, you know, obviously, he gave notes when he did, but nothing in any way like uh, took away from Romero's vision. He was just there to support Romero's vision. And now he had that for a long time. After 85, that goes away because they're no longer partners at Laurel. But I want to say one more thing about like the heroism of him in the belief in his own work, because this Dawn of the Dead was nearly impossible to get sold because of the violence in the movie. Like every studio wanted it, but they wanted it cut to the bone. And then they got a distributor who would release it. And they came up against the MPAA who said, We're, it's an X rating. So they chose to go unrated, which canceled most of print advertising, all of television advertising for the movie. And... Rubenstein backed him up and Romero had the sense enough to go, no, this isn't exploitation. This is actually all worth it. I'm going to stand behind this to our own financial demise. So in the 80s, when the MPA was slashing every horror movie to pieces, like Romero only grew in my estimation as a hero, like for standing up to them for his vision. He's he's a rare bird, that George A. Romero. Gotcha. And now you look at it and you're just like, what? What are they objecting to? You know, there's the the scene where they're pulling the guy apart and they're eating his guts and stuff, but it's such a minor part. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. And you like, can see all of this on television. Oh, now. yeah, yeah. Like, other than, you know, the swear words. <laughs> and that you can too if you show it on FXX or something. Exactly. Yeah. It's wild. All right. Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
Är du vampyr? Hade du tyckt om mig ändå? Vill du bli ihop med mig? That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Let the Right One In. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Father Malone and Jamie. So, Father Malone, what is the latest with you, sir? If you want to know any of the cuckoo nonsense that I get involved in, head over to fathermalone.com. That's a link tree. You can uh, find my video podcast, Wolf and Raisin, the Banachek podcast. You can also find a link to a show that Mike and I do called Midnight Viewing, the Night Gallery podcast. And also the main thing I work on is my uh, radio drama, Dark Destinations, I write and produce. You can find that all over at fathermalone.com. And Jamie, what has been up with you in the several years since we've spoken? Well, I'm currently writing a series of kids' sci-fi novels over here in England, uh, Skywake, which is about alien invasions and video games. And my first movie came out in the States and UK and Europe earlier this year, which is called One Shot, which was an action movie all done in one shot with um, Scott Atkins and Brian Philippe. And I have to say, your book, Book of the Dead, The Complete History of Zombie Cinema, fucking fantastic. One of the best books on zombie cinema ever, if not just one of the best books of cinema. It's really cheap right now over on paperback at Amazon, and it's all the revised version. I have the original, so I I was very proud and happy to purchase the updated version, because when it comes to zombies, like we said, they just don't stop. I take my hat off to you, sir, just to be able to keep up with the madness of zombies. They are they are unstoppable. There's no other word for it. You cannot you shoot them in the head, even these they keep coming. Cinematic zombies, cinema zombies, film zombies, video game zombies, they're everywhere. They just I don't think they'll ever stop. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If if you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, Check out some of the other podcasts that I work on, The Shabby Detective, Podcast of Power, Rankin on Bass, and more. They are all available, as well as Father Malone's podcast, over at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth and zombies take over the world. 